everybody in Serial Killer Country. My name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into the lives and psyches of the killers we love to learn about. Each week, Brian and I will find a true crime story that resonated with us. Then I'll discuss one well-known or lesser-known killer and go deep into their childhood, lives, methodology, and most importantly, how they got caught. And then we'll get a little spooky. We'll learn something about cryptids or the supernatural with Brian. Yeah, yeah. Before we start, just want to remind you all that our Patreon is live. There are four tiers from 5 to $50 that offer you loads of fun things, like a special extra podcast where Brian and I discuss conspiracy theories, or you could even have a group on two chat. So not one-on-one, <laughs> but you get to talk to us. Ask us any questions you want. It's private. It's on the Discord. It's just a fun, you know, ask us anything kind of thing that you can do every month. Yeah. If you're interested in merch, our website is www.whenkillersgetcaught.com. And that's where you can find links to pretty much everything we do. So starting out this week in true crime, I have been following a case. I'm just... The the headline in itself is just interesting. But what I'm telling you is that a 17-year-old boy has been charged with the murder of his twin sister. His name is Benjamin Elliott, and her name is Megan. He stabbed her in the neck several times on Wednesday of this week. Oh. Now, Benjamin claims that he woke up between 2.30 and 3 in the morning standing in his sister's bedroom with a knife and that he didn't realize he was in there. In fact, he thought he was dreaming. He removed the knife and sat down beside her and called 911, according to claims he's made in court. Megan Elliott was pronounced dead at the scene. The 911 operator instructed Benjamin on how to perform CPR, which he was in the process of doing when the deputies arrived at his house. Mm-hmm. Uh, moments after the call, the parents woke up. There's audio of them screaming. Uh, after discovering that their daughter was dead. And so now this is popping up in a bunch of my true crime groups that I'm a member of on Facebook and other forums with people all just going, do we really think that he was sleepwalking? Hey, there are cases where, you know, the sleepwalking is, a you know, it plays a big role in it. So there have been some news reports that said, though, that the parents initially didn't want to allow the police in like this is still something that is in the process of happening. Huh, interesting. Okay. So we shall see what's That's, going on. Yeah, it's just very interesting. And I mean, has he had have they reported history of him sleepwalking or anything like that? <sighs> like, and then the parents not wanting the police him. I mean, I would like it depends. What time in the morning did he call the cops and the cops came? So he's saying that he discovered that he was awake. Like he woke up and was like, oh no, this isn't a dream at about 3 a.m. Mm. But the police only got there at 4.45, which is a big gap from when he says he realized that he, he did it yeah. and when they called. Uh, hmm. They had they did detain him. You know, there's been now at this point like an initial like hearing and of whatnot. Of course, yeah, yeah. But yeah. They, they have the knife. They have everything. They had to get search warrants to go look in the house. It's just, it's real interesting. This happened in Georgia, by the way. Of course, Georgia. <laughs> mm, so, yeah. 
the police are officially charging him with murder. Regardless as to what the family said, they're like, listen, y'all can work that out in court yeah. with the lawyers, but this is a clear cut and dry murder case. Hmm. So he's already been like arraigned on the base charges. Very... His bond set at $100,000. Oh, wow. Yeah. But like, we don't know anything about that. So I'm guessing that's going to come up as a proper investigation happens. Right. Does he have a history of sleepwalking? Does he do strange things? I mean, some sleepwalkers just kind of walk through the house. Um, there's actually a lady I follow on TikTok. She's a delightful woman. But like her husband the- set up. What, it's like Sabrina Spooky. Is she the one that does the dad jokes and all the freaking puns? I don't remember that. She She's a writer. Okay, not there's another one that does sleepwalking yeah, too. Yeah, um, she's a blonde lady. She's adorable. Uh, she also writes like spooky, like spooky books too. But um, her, they just set up cameras all over the house. Mm-hmm. And there have been times that her husband has been like outside, like you need to come inside the house. And she's just like, but it's snowing. Some paranormal but she's fully activity. 100% asleep. Paranormal um, activity stuff. Love and it. she has what's, it's it's more than just sleepwalking. It's another issue mm. where there's a complete disconnect with her brain and rest. Um, but yeah, she's, she's cool. She's a cool lady. She's very funny. I'm, but like she just will post clips of her walk, like of the the footage, like the cameras in her house, mm-hmm. her just walking back and forth around the house, like all sorts of interesting stuff. So there's things like that, but that's more than just your basic, right, right, sleepwalking. So, and, and then what he did, well, what he did if he was sleepwalking is more than your basic sleepwalking, right? As well. <laughs> so, like. If he doesn't have any a history of this, then it's just like okay, then was right. Was this something that was that came up in the hour it took you to call the police? Yeah, like did you just make this up? But yeah, we're gonna so give that's the kid, what I'm looking at right we're now. We're gonna give the kid the benefit of the doubt for right now. <laughs> um, killed his sister. I mean, if okay. he did do it by accident, he probably feels terrible. If like if it was an accident, I would assume he felt terrible, but ugh. So anyway, mm-hmm. on to my thing. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> this one's a little bit funnier than Britney's. Uh, so apparently the streets of New York, uh, apparently just Queens, uh, is being terrorized by a rooster. A rooster? A rooster. It's terrorizing. <laughs> I was looking up the, the lady with the sleepwalking and yeah. then my brain just connected rooster yeah yeah so apparently um there's a there's a rooster uh it's apparently well known in the neighborhood as well and it just is attacking people um one person says that i was just you know usually just casually walking you know to head to my bus to go to work when i felt a peck on my left hand and he said this thing kept coming. It is so vicious, almost evil. This is like magpie <laughs> levels of, of bird violence. Blood was gushing. Oh my god. I was trying to apply pressure to it and it kept charging at me. Oh. Oh well, man. That's no, just sad. Roosters are crazy, okay? And like I said, the rooster has, does have a reputation in the neighborhood, and people who live in the area told NBC. Uh, that 
they've been terrorized for years by this rooster. So I'm not sure if this is like just a random wild rooster that has just you know, set up a shop in Queens. Or does this belong to somebody? Because there's lots of people yeah. up there who have chickens and roosters out in their yards because they like true. keep the eggs. It's very, you know, gentrified neighborhood-esque. This is true. It could be just like a the little the, the country white people show up <laughs> with all their chickens. I was gonna say, which this... isn't a bad thing. I mean, fresh eggs. I was gonna say escape cockfight. Oh <laughs> gosh, that's horrible. That could explain why it's so violent. Yes, he's like, I'm ready to fight. Come on now, where's my other? My where's other my opponent? Yeah. <laughs> and this person's like, I didn't sign up for this, sir. And then I guess one of the other neighbors, they were laughing about it. it was like kids can't even ride their scooters. People can't walk in peace without being attacked by this. <laughs> but this rooster, this rooster that's terrorizing the neighborhoods in Queens. Someone go out there, catch this rooster, and, and fry it up. Wow, <laughs> fam. What if that's somebody's friend? Someone's violent friend. They need to talk to their friend. Then. <laughs> you can't talk to a rooster, fam. You it need, does what it wants. You need to sit that rooster it's like down. Like trying to talk to a cat. They this, only understand spray bottles. This is true. This is true. But yeah, no. You sit down. Sit this rooster down. And tell him like, hey, I heard you out there terrorizing everybody. You need to stop, or they're gonna cook you. You're gonna get it. That's that's. This is weird, <laughs> right? This is funny. I, I, look, I like to bring the levity up in here. <laughs> you always bring it well, down. today I'm bringing the uh, conspiracy, but not in the way that we handle uh, like conspiracy crypt. This is okay. more of a, well, so. Sometimes I get to looking into things uh-huh. and you fall down into a rabbit hole and you can't get out of the rabbit hole until you've read everything you can about the subject. I don't know if other people feel that way, but that's how I am. And so what started me looking into this was that I was just looking up the FBI. And so I was tracking <laughs> back backwards to like when it started, you know, and like J. Edgar Hoover and all that stuff. And imagine my surprise when one of the FBI's first major cases involved a massive conspiracy where members of the Osage Nation were murdered shortly after becoming the richest people in the world after oil was discovered beneath their reservation. Oh, imagine that. It's called the Reign of Terror, and it lasted from 1921 to 1926. Now, according to Osage Nation history, there are still roughly 60 unsolved murders from this time. But ultimately, the FBI, the FBI was able to solve about 24 of them. Not only is this story just incredible in general, um, there's actually a movie that's supposed to come out about it in like the next couple of months. Oh, nice. It's a Scorsese film, too. Oh, even better. So I figured before any of us go and see this movie, I'm going to fill everybody on, on what happened in Osage Hills in Oklahoma because, boy, was it a wild ride. And I have to let everybody know, listening, I've been hyping this up to Brian now for a little while. (laughs) I was like, oh, you don't even understand. It's going to blow your mind. I was (laughs) having a good, this was just cool. But before we even start anything, let's learn a little bit about the Osage Nation. So they are an indigenous tribe in America who lived in Oklahoma for a pretty long time. But we have found remnants of the tribe as far east as the Ohio River and the Mississippi River dating back to 700 B.C. Their name is a French version of their indigenous name, which is Wazesh, which means midwaters in the Degihan Sioux language. 
They migrated west after the 17th century, and archaeologists have found evidence that there were three different routes that they took during this immigration period. One group followed the Missouri Osage River to western central Missouri and eastern Oklahoma. Another group took that same river to west central Missouri. Then another cluster of about six different groups followed the Oneata River in Iowa, and they ended at the Osage River. This happened because the Iroquois invaded the Ohio Valley where they had been living. And there were a lot of battles. Mm. <laughs> um, and I have to explain this because <laughs> my family is linked to the uh, Confederacy. Mm. It's referred to as the Iroquois Confederacy. It's the initial name for the five tribes. The name that we refer to is Haudenosaunee. Those tribes are Mohawk, Oneida, that's my family, Onondaga, Cayuga, and Seneca. Later on, there was another trial, uh, another tribe that was added, but at this time, there's only five. Okay. Uh, so when I say they were invading, this was five different tribes invading an area. So I totally understand why the Osage people just said, I, I'm a, I'm a Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I'm going to head out. SpongeBob style. This is too much for um, me right now. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not dealing with this. Okay. Like they had a whole series of bloody battles through Kentucky, Virginia. Like they were just like, you know what? <laughs> we good. So from the 1700s to the 1900s, they were taking over territory in the Midwest. They were raiding near Santa Fe, New Mexico. They explored Palos Verdes Peninsula on the coast of California just before the 1800s. The largest group headed up towards Oklahoma and Kansas, and there were hostilities between the Osage Nation and the Cherokee Nation. Then in 1839, the U.S. government stepped in and forced all of the different Osage bands of the tribe to leave Arkansas and Oklahoma, and they moved them into Kansas, which is where the tribe had agreed to settle in 1825. But like, you know, part of that time period was we conquering. <laughs> so uh but the other issue was that didn't last because even though they had been forced into Can into kansas they got forced back into oklahoma in 1871 this was actually their third and most terrible displacement it was pretty traumatic for the tribe and there are tombstones uh across the entire area that show that the majority of the people who died during that third transition were young mothers and infants oh wow so it's pretty hard on the tribe in general mm. now solidly in oklahoma they settled in and then in 1894 large quantities of oil were discovered underneath a large prairie that was owned by the tribe the osage neg they negotiated with the u.s and retained the rights for the minerals under their land this was called the Osage Allotment Act of 1906, and it said that any subsurface minerals within the Osage Native Reservation were held in a trust by the U.S. government, but were still tribally owned. And they were paid mineral lease royalties to the tribe. And this started out as like tribal members. Uh, it was called head rights, actually. But those people who were allottees in the tribe and had that head right would get like $100 every couple months. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it was $1,000 every couple months. And then by the early, like the late, like 19 teens, the tribe had received millions of dollars at this point. So they were at that moment the richest people in the entire world. Oh, nice. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. 
unfortunately, this isn't the only time that the, the Osage tribe is going to have issues with this. There's a lot of really jacked up stuff that happens with that the acts that were passed during that time period. But also recently, they sued the U.S. government for mismanagement of the trust assets in the year 2000, and they settled for $380 million in 2011. So it's been 100 years of drama with this. Yeah. But we are specifically talking about the time period before the reign of terror. So we're back in 1921. The U.S. government isn't all that happy about how the Osage Nation is using their wealth. We are a we're we're a very racist nation nation now with a very racist past, and there is nothing that makes broke white folks more upset than seeing brown people drive Rolls Royces <laughs> and building big old beautiful houses. In fact, the press was obsessed with stories of the rich Redskins, and they took delight in trying to cast the Osage tribe as savage, spendthrift. Everybody wanted to know how these people were spending their money. So Congress passes a law requiring any member of the Osage Nation who is at least half to be appointed a guardian until they can prove that they are competent enough to spend their own money. Excuse me? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, they, they, they set this up originally going, well, a lot of these people who are getting this money are minors. They're children okay. who are, you know, full blood. This is just one of the ways that the U.S. government has screwed indigenous people over using blood quantum. But that's another conversation for another day. Um, and the thing is, even if these minors had parents, mm -hmm. it didn't matter. The government was like, no, no, no. Everybody needs to have someone to help them with their money. No, it don't. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and this wasn't handled by the feds, but by local lawyers and businessmen. And it was completely taken advantage of. Uh, in fact... So when I tell you there's so much money here, the Osage Nation began auctioning off development rights to parts of their reservation for people who were hunting for oil. And according to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, in 1924 alone, their revenue was $30 million in 1920. That's about $400 million now. So a family of four who were all Alatis who had head right mm -hmm. could be collecting <laughs> Roughly six hundred thousand U.S. dollars today just to exist. Wow, there's a lot of money, and that guardianship was very corrupt. So this all really starts the reign of terror, May twenty seventh, nineteen twenty one. Local hunters find a badly decomposed body of thirty three year old Anna Brown in a ravine in Osage County. Anna was known to go on sprees, as her family called them, where she got dancing and drinking with her friends until dawn. Also, reminding you, we are still in the Prohibition era. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of bootleggers and there's a lot of crime happening. <laughs> She'd gone out on one of those sprees on May 21st, and her sister Molly Burkhardt hadn't heard from her by May 24th, and she was pretty alarmed. There, They had a previous sister who had died in 1918, and... Molly wasn't entirely sure that one made sense either. Molly and her sisters and their parents were all on something referred to as the Osage Roll, which meant that they were registered tribal members and that they were all Alatis who had head right. Mm. This family all lived in an area called Gray Horse, which was one of the reservation's older settlements. Also, all the sisters were married to white men. That's going to matter later on. Now, the last time that Anna had been seen was a luncheon on the 21st that Molly had been the, what do you call that when you 
have a party. The host? Yeah, she was hosting a luncheon. <laughs> Anna showed up drunk. She caused the scene with pretty much everybody there. Uh, Molly had to stop her, sober her up. And Molly's husband's younger brother, Brian, spelt with a Y, said he <laughs> drop her off at her house. Brian insisted that he had dropped her off at like 5.30 in the afternoon before going to see a show that was called Bringing Up Father with another man in town named William Hale, who was his uncle and also one of the most powerful people in Osage County. But we will also talk about William a little more. Now, after three nights of not hearing from her sister, Molly's like, all right, y'all, let's get this going. And she's like, she sends people to go check on Anna's house. Nobody's been there. Anna's servants are like, she didn't come home. Mm -hmm. uh, that's also when they learned that another resident in on the tribe, Charles Whitehorn, had also vanished a week before Anna. So oh, a week after Anna's been gone now, a different body is found on a hill north of downtown Pawhuska. It had two bullets in its head. Execution style. The body was so rotten they couldn't identify it. And the only way they figured out who it was was because the oil workers who found him checked his pockets mm. and discovered a letter that someone had written to Charles Whitehorn. Charles' wife is white and Cheyenne Indian. Huh. When Within 24 hours, they also find Anna's body in the mud in a ravine, partially submerged, bloated, we didn't really do autopsies then like we do now. Mm -hmm. Instead, what they had was called a coroner's inquest. A group of people show up led by a justice of the peace, and they have kind of a conversation over the body at the location where they find it. So they do this with Anna Brown. Uh, the reason why we had it like this was because after the American Revolution, Americans were kind of not interested in cops. Citizens were afraid that they would become a symbol of oppression in America. How funny. <laughs> wow it's like history like repeats itself or something like that uh yeah so these inquests were regular people from the town who were doing they were filling the gap that cops would do today mm -hmm. and to be fair when these regular people found that an injustice had been done it usually got real violent so like they would take their job very seriously oh okay cool <laughs> At Anna's inquest, they realized they like put her body on like a slab and they were just checking and stuff. And they were like, oh, yeah, no, she got shot in the back of the head. This is definitely a murder. Because originally when they first found her body, they was like, well, what if she just got drunk and like fell over in the woods and like exposure? But there was definitely a bullet hole. So the information about both these murders now falls on the local sheriff in Osage County. Mm. He's a 50-year-old former frontiersman named Harv Freyas, who took his job pretty seriously, but he also liked to get a little uh, money on the side from his favorite criminals. <laughs> pretty much if you were like a moonshine bootlegger, you knew that all you had to do was pay Harv with a little booze and he'd let you out. When Harv learned about Anna, he was already knee-deep in investigating Charles Whitehorn's murder. So he was like, I need somebody else to focus on this. Mm -hmm. So he passed it off to the town marshal. The marshal shows up and it's just like, okay, she was drinking at some point. Um, somebody definitely shot her in the back of the head. He did note that there were two sets of car tracks at the crime scene that were not from the people who had showed up. 
but we didn't know how to trace a killer from just tra- tracks. Mm. <laughs> and at best, like the the best area where there was forensics were like the major cities. Your Philadelphia, your DC, Houston, LA, New York, no middle more. of Oklahoma didn't have really any forensic knowledge at that point. They didn't even photograph the crime scene back then. Oh, come on. Yeah. Uh, and even if they had, it was already incredibly contaminated by roughly a dozen people this who had true. traipsed through. This is true. This caused a bit of a media frenzy. They recovered a bullet from Charles Whitehorn's body, and it was roughly the same size as the hole in Anna's head. They thought it was a 33. The, th- the the theories are rampant. They're like, two Indians dying in the same week. Uh, they're both wealthy Osage residents. And so people are like, well, is this like H.H. Holmes in Chicago? <laughs> or is this just a coincidence? Because that was the only like international serial type murder that we had any reference for at the time right, right. which was hh H. holmes at the end of the 19th century mm-hmm. some of the elders actually said that they felt like finding that oil under the reservation was a curse on the osage people um, and there was one quote from a newspaper that said after the fat checks from the great white father end i know my people will be happier Hmm. Yes, they did refer to <laughs> kind of how we, we say like Daddy Biden and we're being kind of facetious. That's kind of how they talked about checks from the government. Those back fat then. chicks. At that point, local police were just kind of ready to be done with Anna's case. But Molly didn't wasn't having that. She reached out to William Hale, rich man, a lot of land that he purchased a lot of it from the Osage people. He had worked his way up from just being a poor cowboy to a man who now walked around town in a bow tie and recited poetry. Mm. Like he thought he was that guy. He was this shit. Okay. He even had a diamond studded pin from the Masonic Lodge. So, you know, he had those kind of uh, connections. Oh, okay. Hale was also a reservation deputy in Fairfax. Now that was mainly an honorary title, but a lot of the people in the Osage nation trusted him. And so when he talked to Molly, he was just like, I got you. I'm going to get justice for your sister. Mm. There was a small hearing after this, and they went over all the details of the last day of Anna's life. They interviewed everybody who had anything to do with her servants, everybody, especially Brian Burkhart. And um, his responses were a little weird, but they really couldn't prove anything from the fact that like, maybe this guy was just a little nervous on the stand. Hmm. The other issue we came into when this discussion at this hearing was that this area had a big issue with outlaws because of prohibition and the Osage Hills were a really nice place to hide if you were on the run. Cause it was big, beautiful wilderness. The other theory though was maybe it was somebody on the reservation And that made sense because the only people who would know all of Anna's patterns were people who knew her. Mm. Molly was suspicious of Anna's ex-husband, Oda Brown. And when he was questioned after Anna's death, he sobbed and put on a total show. And everybody was like, yeah, he's lying. (laughs) (laughs) It also didn't help that after Anna's death, Brown got a lawyer and tried to get her share of the Osage allotment. But after they had gotten divorced, Anna had changed her will so that all of her money would go back to her mom, Lizzie. Oh, okay, cool. 
Awesome. So Brown didn't have any legal right to get that money. Mm -hmm. And at this point, the only way you could get an allotment was either through an inheritance or a will. So, or the natural way that money flowed if you like die. So if a spouse dies, goes to the next person, Mm -hmm. you know, the family members. Right. A few weeks after Anna's funeral, a man who was in jail for forgery sent a letter to Sheriff Harve and was like, I know about the murder. So both Harve and Hale rushed to meet this man, and he claims that Anna's ex-husband, Oda Brown, paid him $8,000 to murder her. He told them he'd shot her in the head and carried her body to the creek afterward, which is why they hadn't been able to find the bullet, because they'd been looking in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. Oda Brown was arrested, but there was no evidence that the forger had even been in Osage County. So they just released Oda Brown and officially Anna's murder was listed. She was listed as murdered by parties unknown. Wow. Two months after her daughter's death, Lizzie died as well. She'd been ill for years, but it got like exponentially worse after Anna died. Okay. In fact, <clears throat> Molly's brother-in-law, Bill Smith, was like, this feels weird. And so he started digging into the idea that Lizzie had been poisoned. This made sense because now Lizzie would have had two allotment checks she'd be getting after Anna passed. Right. This was a lot of money. Unfortunately, the local police showed absolutely no interest in pursuing Lizzie as a case. An elderly, ill woman died of her illness, and they were not going to do an autopsy or an inquest over it. So Molly puts out a $2,000 reward for anybody who can give her information about the murder of her sister, Anna. And the Whitehorn family goes, bet you we will also put out $2,500 for any reward on Charles' body. So now we're looking at almost five grand for help on these two murders that were discovered on virtually the same day. Hmm. It seemed like it'd be a good motivator. But then uh, Harv Freyas got himself charged with failing to enforce the law because he'd been accepting all those bribes from bootleggers. And the Oklahoma attorney general was aiming to put him in jail. So he was kind of (laughs) busy. He didn't have any time to look into the crimes because he was too busy trying not to go to jail himself. Too busy. The Oklahoma attorney general was like, Yeah. So Hale decides, I'm going to hire a private detective. Now, in the early 20th century, detective agencies definitely filled the void where corrupt or underfunded or just downright inept police weren't doing their job. Mm -hmm. Just like now, private detectives are very unwieldy. You never knew if you were getting somebody like Virgil Vandegrift who helped capture her Bowmeister or if you were going to get a scammer who was going to take your money and run. Uh. So it was all over the place. So Hale chooses a detective from Kansas City who went by the name Pike. First name only. Anna's estate was like, screw it, we're going to hire detectives too. And then the guardians for both Anna and Lizzie, that his name was Scott Mathis, he put together a team of private eyes and so did the Whitehorn estate. So at this point now, the three of these people have organized roughly 50 different detectives who are all over the Osage Reservation trying to find information. And the thing is, these weren't your average detectives. These are all people who had previously worked for the Secret Service. They were considered to be better than Pinkerton detectives. Really? 
One of them was William J. Burns, who was referred to as America's Sherlock Holmes. And he had a whole team of people under him. The information about them, like none of their names are listed in any of the information that you look up. And the FBI actually just lets you go onto their website and pull up all the data they have on this. (laughs) So it's a lot of reading and it's very interesting. But like, so they were only known by code numbers and all 50 of these code number people kind of descended on the town Mm. and they began looking in everyone. There were a lot of dead ends, a lot of false leads, but they did learn that Anna had been seen with two men from the oil fields before her death. Now, while the detectives were out following every lead, a man by the name of A.W. Comstock showed up in Greyhorse to help as well. William Burns had investigated him in the past for trying to help an oil company trick the Osage Tribal Council into a bad land deal. Those charges couldn't be proven, but Burns decided Comstock might be a good ally to have. Mm-hmm. Everybody was a suspect, but none of them were good enough suspects. They ended up finding out that Anna was pregnant and nobody knew who the dad was. And so then that caused a whole series of rumors that Anna could have been sleeping with other people's boyfriends or husbands. And that's why she was murdered. Oh, it was wow. all kinds of crazy. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. So February 1922, nine months after both Anna and Whitehorn Mm -hmm. are dead, they don't know what to do. Hale's detective, Pike, had abandoned the case entirely. Sheriff Harv couldn't lead any investigation because he had been officially kicked out of office. Uh, They had no more leads to follow. It was looking like they didn't have any idea who had killed Anna or Charles. And then in late February, William Stepson left his house. And when he came home a few hours later, he was visibly ill. He died before dawn. Unlike Lizzie, William was only 29 and was considered to be in pretty good shape. So his death was very suspicious. And when they decided to do an inquest in him, they determined that he was poisoned. The poison was assumed to be strychnine. And even though we had the forensic ability to test for strychnine poisoning, nobody did it. Why? They just decided all you had to do was take like a a, a flesh sample. Yeah. Word I'm looking for is not flesh, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I get you. A <laughs> tissue sample. A tissue sample. I was like, just take a little bit of flesh. Just that flesh. <laughs> Scoop it up. <laughs> You're good to go. Uh, March 26, 1922. Another Osage woman dies of poisoning. No toxicology done on her remains either. Yo, what's going on? <laughs> july 28th 1922 joe bates gets whiskey from a stranger and after a sip of it later he begins frothing at the mouth and collapses he's only in his mid-30s when he dies at this point the osage nation is dropping like flies and they all are people who coincidentally are over that 50 percent threshold meaning they get checks Mm mm-hmm There were so many cases by August that the Osage Nation reached out to Barney McBride, who was a wealthy oil man. And they were like, listen, you have connections to D.C. We need help. Please go get help. (laughs) Someone is killing us, please. Right. So McBride was married to an indigenous woman and she had passed and he was trusted by the Osage people. He was actually raising um, their daughter within like the tribe trying to help her you know know her people right right so he agreed to do it 
when Barney gets to D.C., there's a telegram waiting for him in his rooming house from a friend of his that just says, be careful. That night, when McBride went out to play billiards, somebody kidnapped him, and in the morning, they found his body. Oh, my God. He had been stabbed over 20 times, been bludgeoned in the head until his skull had collapsed, and stripped naked except for his shoes and socks. Had they not been for a business card which had been tucked in his shoe, they wouldn't have been able to ID him, which lets me know that the people who did this wanted him to be found. Mm -hmm. This was a warning. The local police in Washington were like, he was probably followed from Oklahoma. Ah, uh, And the they hell? wanted to kill him before he could talk to anybody official. Why? His, I'm sorry. There was a, actually an article in the Washington Post that was just <clears throat> like conspiracy, like, you know, bar, you know, oil men murdered due to conspiracy to kill rich Indians, like major news. And then it goes quiet. There's no suspicious deaths. There's nothing. Hmm. Until February of 1923. This time it started again. Henry Rowan, 40 years old, found in his car, frozen, but uh, he definitely didn't die from freezing because there were two bullets in the back of his head, just like with Charles Whitehorn. They're just making this stuff obvious. Like, what the... Well, okay. just like with Anna, the deputies and marshals show up at the ravine. They look at the body. They notice there are tread marks in the frozen mud. From that moment on, every Osage house had electric lights put outside of their houses. Mm. And the thing is, this would have been seen as like a really bougie thing to do because hmm. everybody didn't have light like that in the 19. 19- <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everybody didn't have the ability to drown your house in light like we do yeah, now. It yeah, was expensive. But they got the money to do that. <laughs> right. Well, that's what I said like, oh, look at these people. They have lights on all night long outside their houses. But they had that so that if they heard something outside their house, they could look and be like, I yep, see you. Yep, exactly. Play it safe. Molly and her family were still looking for a killer. Bill Smith is like, Psh. I know this is okay. I'm I'm on to something here. He's doing his own separate. That's Molly's brother-in-law, uh, married to her sister Rita, and he's just like, I'm, something's going on here. I'm gonna follow this lead. He's doing this all on his own on a sneak tip. Hmm. <laughs> and Bill realized he must have been onto something because they started hearing people skulking around the house at night. So much so that he and Rita. Had trouble sleeping, so they moved a mm. month after Rowan's death. This time, that was a house closer to the center of Fairfax, where they had a lot of neighbors, whereas before they were out more in the, the countryside. Mm-hmm. In March, a man shows up at their door and is like, I heard you were selling farmland. And Bill's like, you are mistaken, sir. And Bill told his friends that the man looked like he was casing the place. Then all the neighbor's dogs started dying one by one, all poisoned. Come on. Bill tells a friend of his, I'm pretty sure I'm going to die soon. Mm. So on March 9th, Bill drives a friend to a bootlegger's ranch on the western side of the reservation. This bootlegger is Henry Grammer. He owned a ranch and he was a well-known outlaw with connections to the Kansas mob. So Bill and his friend get to the ranch. Grammer's not there, so they just grab a couple of jars of whiskey, have a couple of swigs. They drop Bill off back at home. 
Reed is there, and so is one of their servants named Nettie Brookshire, who sometimes would stay there overnight, like if she was working late. Mm -hmm. At about 3 a.m., everyone in town heard a loud explosion that radiated through the neighborhood. It bent trees, blew out windows. People down the street at the Fairfax Motel were thrown out of their beds. Like, Was there a bomb? Yes. Molly and Ernest were over on the other side of the reservation, and Molly looked out the window and went, there's a fire. She thought it was thunder at first, but it was Bill Smith's house, and the entire house was gone. This was such a massive explosion that, like, it was just destroyed. The town rushed out and they're like, we got to look for any survivors. Did anybody survive? And they began moving rubble. And after forever, they started hearing Bill screaming. Mm -hmm. Rita was beside him in bed. They said it looked like she was peacefully sleeping. But when they moved her, they saw that she had been hit by something in the back of her head. She was killed immediately. They couldn't even find Nettie. A justice of the peace simply like looked at it and determined that she had been blown to pieces. Nettie was only 19 years old. She was married and had a small child. There weren't enough remains for them to even do an inquest. And in fact, they found, they found part of Nettie's remains roughly 300 feet away burned into the side of a house. Wow. Okay. And all I could think of here was like, damn, poor Molly. She is literally now the only person left alive in her family. Yeah. Okay. They carried Bill to an ambulance. They took him to a hospital. On the way to the hospital, he passed out. Originally, when they found him, he was awake and screaming. And when he found out Rita was gone, he asked uh, one of the people to save him for their gun so he could kill himself, too. He was sad. Hmm. (sighs) Poor guy. They realized as they were taking him to the hospital that this had been planned specifically because roughly every, like, justice of the peace, all those people Mm -hmm. were out of town for a court case. Oh, how convenient. Mm Mm-hmm. They had to rush back in the middle of the night. Cops set up floodlights at all the exits and entrances to the hospital. They posted an armed guard outside of his hospital room. Everybody was like, if Bill was, if this was because he said he knew something, Mm -hmm. he's got to tell us something now. Yeah. Yeah. Because he has, mm, time is taken for him. Right. His (laughs) friends say that like, while he, he rambled on and on about stuff, sometimes he like woke up and he was like, did I say something? And they were like, no, 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 you didn't oh, say anything. He's trying to stop himself from saying something. He was something. worried that maybe he would say something that would cause, like, it was weird. And then uh, four days later, he died. He never told anybody anything. How, well, at least at this point. How, how did he die? It was just by the No, from it, the was, it was from his injuries. Okay. I was about to say, what, what did somebody get into the hospital? Okay, question for you, yes. real quick. So I don't, I'm not sure how reservations are set up. Uh huh. Um, is there some type of security they have there? It's a lot of them are big open areas. There are generally reservation police, and they did have like Hale was one of their reservation sheriffs. Right, right. But it's weird. Like right now, we come, we run into issues in the U.S. when there's like a missing woman, mm-hmm. like the case that I talked about on TikTok last week. They don't know where she died or where this lady went missing. Um, so. They're not sure who's in charge. 
Is it the reservation police? Is it the state? That's why a lot of times when there are reservation, like people who go missing or die on reservations, it's handled by the feds because, well, we at least know that they're the ones in charge. Right, true. But as far as this was, it was just, a, it was a massive area. And I mean, the thing is they had people coming and going nonstop because they had oil barons coming in. They were auctioning off land to make money. There were people, you know, digging for oil. There were loads of random people coming off and on this reservation. Huh. Today, we might not have that. Right. But at this point in history with the Osage Nation, they did have too many people on there, which also contributed to the confusion with whether this was an internal conflict or or somebody criminals on the outside trying to kill people. Right. Okay. It's just like, it's... Okay, continue. continue. <laughs> I told you this is a tale. It's a tale, isn't it, sir? It's, it's pulling me in. I like it. I like it. <laughs> so April twenty third. Uh, sorry, not April twenty third, but April of nineteen twenty three. Mm-hmm. Uh, the governor of Oklahoma, Jack C. Walton, sends oh. his top investigator, Herman Fox Davis, to Osage County because people in Osage Hills were saying that the reason why they hadn't found the killer is because it must be somebody in the local police department. Or either someone in bed with the local police department. Now, Davis was also a former member of the Burns Detective Agency. And the governor was like, bet, listen, I hired the best man to protect me. He's got this. (laughs) Within a few days, though, uh, Davis was hanging out at the bootleggers' houses and in the gambling dens. And he was no help. In fact... By June, he ended up pleading guilty to bribery and got a two-year sentence. Oh, my God. The governor pardoned him. Then when he got released, he killed an attorney and got life what in prison. What the hell? So, <laughs> yeah, that one didn't work out. And uh, following that, Governor Walton got impeached in November of 1923. Mm. Seems he had pardoned a lot of people, including some of the oil men. He was... a. Uh, Getting that money to uh, build a nicer house for himself. Right. Of course. Of course. One day in June of 1923, though, George Bighart called up his friend and an attorney, W.W. Vaughn. He was sick and he was being taken to Oklahoma City Hospital. George Bighart said that he had information about the murders and he was only going to speak to Vaughn in person. So before Vaughn went to go to that meeting to see his friend, Mm -hmm. he goes and he says his wife, listen. I've been collecting evidence about this on my own. I have hit it at this location. When Vaughn gets there, Big Heart is still alive. He shares the information with his friend. Apparently, it's very incriminating. Then Vaughn sits with his friend as Big Heart dies. Vaughn calls the new Osage County Sheriff and he's like, listen, I'm coming back tomorrow. I know everything about everything. You don't even got to worry about it. The sheriff's just like, well, do you know who killed Big Heart? And he's like, not only do I know who killed my friend, I know more. Oh, bet. Let's go. He was last seen boarding the overnight train. And when the train pulled into the station, he wasn't on the train anymore. What? No, what? (laughs) What? (laughs) Uh, They found his body about 36 hours later. It was about 30 miles north of Oklahoma City on off the train tracks. He had been thrown off the train. His neck was broken. He had also been stripped naked, just like McBride. So everything he had written down in that meeting oh, with Big Heart gone. was gone. And then when Vaughn's widow went to that special hiding spot, it was cleaned out too. What the? Okay, look. I know this is in the past, but guys, you got to be quiet. 
Keep quiet. <laughs> At this point, the reign of terror had claimed 24 people from just the Osage nation, but it was also killing a bunch of people outside of the nation yeah. now too. Um, the, uh, a rancher who was trying to help the inv- investigation they found his body at the bottom of a flight of steps, and they were able to determine that he was drugged. Another guy was in a different city. He was in Oklahoma City, and he got shot in broad daylight on his way to go talk to state officials about the case. Oh, my God. So now it's not just people with a head right. It's anybody who's trying to get help for the uh, tribe. Yeah. The Justice of the Peace was receiving anonymous threats. Like, at this point, he was just like, I don't even want to do inquests on the new bodies that are being found. The new county sheriff was just like, listen, I'm good. (laughs) You know, we don't got to worry about this. It's just some Indians dying. What are you talking about? (laughs) He was scared. And uh, after the bombing of the Smith House, the Osage tribe began asking the federal government to send investigators but specifically investigators who had no ties to Oklahoma at all. Mm -hmm. Because there was obviously a leak here. The Tribal Council actually sent a formal resolution to D.C., and I'm going to read you part of it, which says, Whereas in no case have the criminals been apprehended and brought to justice, whereas the Osage Tribal Council deemed it essential for the preservation of the lives and property of the members of the tribe that prompt and strenuous action be taken to capture and punish the criminals. Be it further resolved that the Honorable Secretary of the Interior be requested to obtain the services of the Department of Justice in capturing and prosecuting the murderers of the members of the Osage tribe. Letters were also sent to the Kansas to Kansas Senator Charles Curtis, who was part Caw and part Osage and at the time the highest elected official with any Indian ancestry. Mm. Like he was the highest to have been ever elected. While the tribe is waiting for a federal response, Molly is just living in fear. She's like, I'm definitely the next target. She heard people breaking into their car one night. And Ernest was just like, just lay still. Like, don't do anything. Let them take the car. Who cares? It's just a car. Yeah. Um, when her brother-in-law and sister had been killed, Hale was in Texas. Hale shows up at Molly's house and is like, Listen, I'm going to get you your vengeance. I promise. Part of Hale's pasture is set on fire. Acres of land damaged. Hundreds of cattle dead. Molly just decided she wasn't going to leave the house anymore. She didn't let anybody visit. She stopped going to church. Molly's faith was gone at this point. Her health deteriorated. She ended up actually giving um, her third child with Ernest to other family members to raise because she was like, well, if I'm going to die, maybe one of us can live. Uh, so, um, so sad. That was uh, her, her little two-year-old Anna at the time. Mm-hmm. Also, she named a baby after her sister. Yeah. Anyway, we don't hear a whole lot about Molly after this. The local physicians, uh, the Schoen brothers, began showing up and giving her injections for her health that they told her was insulin, which should have helped since her her health issue was diabetes. But it wasn't. It was not helping at all. And in fact, in 1925, Molly sent a secret message to a priest saying that she was in danger and she was being poisoned. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you were. Now, 
At the same time, Tom White is a special agent at the Bureau of Investigation, as it was called. He was working in Houston, and he received an urgent order from D.C. His new boss, J. Edgar Hoover, was like, I need to talk to you, and I need to talk to you in person. White had joined the Bureau in 1917 after he had been barred from joining World War I due to a recent surgery. He still wanted to serve his country, but there was also another issue. Tom White was not like a regular lawman. He was a cowboy. Mm-hmm. He had been raised in the wilderness, but he was noticing that the need for cowboys was slowly shrinking in the U.S. We were moving away from the Wild West era, and so he was like, maybe if I uh, if I don't get with the new times, I'm going to be left behind too. Yeah. Unfortunately. Now, President Theodore Roosevelt had created the Bureau as a way to fill the void in law enforcement in 1908. It was so new that they only had a couple hundred agents and a few field offices across America. They hadn't really figured out exactly what they were doing yet. Sometimes they worked on bank fraud or antitrust cases. Other times it was shipments of stolen cars, films, smut, all sorts of random stuff being stolen across America. Other times they hunted down an escaped prisoner. And sometimes they were called in to deal with crimes on Indian reservations, kind of like now because they're the only ones with jurisdiction because they're federal agents. Mm Mm-hmm. They didn't really have any power to arrest anybody back then, but they were very good at figuring things out. This was like this was so new that agents didn't even carry weapons as a part of being an agent back then. They carried weapons because they knew that they were about to be about that business. Right. But it wasn't like you have a special issued weapon. Right. Okay. Okay. So Tom White arrives at the bureau. He here learns about the case in Osage County, and it had been two years. Since the nation had sent that letter. And they had sent other agents to check it out. And all the other agents had said the same thing. There's nothing we can do here. The tribe had actually sold part of their land to help fund the investigation. Which is unheard of and messed up. They ended up selling about $20,000 worth of land, which is about $300,000 now, to be told that there was nothing that could be done. Wow. They were just going to drop it back into the locals' hands, and Hoover was like, we need to do this, and we need to do it differently. So he convinced the governor of Oklahoma to release this guy who was known as Blackie Thompson. And that's a super racist name because Blackie was literally just like a native man who was like a quarter Indian. He couldn't have been that dark for y'all to name him Blackie. I'm just saying. (laughs) I looked at pictures of him and he was probably a hair darker than I am. Oh, wow. Well, you know, they used to call... I know, but I'm still a little mad about it. So when I talk about him, I just end up writing about him as Thompson. There you I was go. like, his name shouldn't have been Blackie nothing. How dare y'all? <laughs> he was light and bright then. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like when I was when I heard his name, I was like, oh, he was probably a dark skinned man. No, they was just racist. Yep. Okay. <laughs> um Thompson was gonna gather evidence working for the bureau. Because they were like, listen, no one's going to question this convicted bank robber for navigating Osage County. This is where a lot of bank robbers hide out in the hills. Mm -hmm. 
Unfortunately, the agents who'd been said to keep an eye on him lost track of him and it was a chills and he robbed another bank and killed a police officer and it took them a long time to find him again. So that's kind of why there was that two year gap Mm -hmm. because literally everybody was trying to deal with the scandal that they had messed up. In fact, like I said, Hoover had just gotten this job. So he was like, crap, we can't do this before. There was also a whole nother like federal scandal that happened during that time period. Mm -hmm. So they were really worried about losing federal funding and proving that the Bureau of Investigation was vital to the Department of Justice. So Hoover brings in Tom White, a cowboy. See, there were still there were a couple of cowboys who worked for the feds at this point, but all the new guys who were coming in were what Tom Wright referred to as the college boys. Oh, these are people who were going to college and then joining the bureau, which is how it works now. Usually. Mm -hmm. But Tom White understood the assignment. He's like, you're not bringing in the military, former military, any former cops. You're calling in somebody who is a frontiersman who has experience dealing with the wild West. And Osage Hills is the Wild West. So they sent White to the Oklahoma field office. And the field office there was in desperate need of somebody who knew what they were doing because they were inundated with crime. Just constant crime. The bootleggers, the gambling dens. Like, they were just like, there's so much crime. We can't keep up with it. Help us, please. Mm -hmm. This was both an opportunity. And if he messed up, this was going to be a death sentence to his career. Other agents who had been sent to Osage Hills and who had not done anything, had either been sent to distant, faraway field offices or outright fired. White was also aware that every single person who had gotten close to the truth here had been murdered. So he knew that he was going to have to operate differently. Right. He spent the first part of the summer of 1925 simply catching up on four years of murders and mayhem in Osage County. He felt that there were had to have been clues in the original files that would like lead him to some answers. Um, and he was surprised to learn that despite Molly Burkhardt being the only surviving member of her family, nobody had decided to interview her. So weird. Yeah. People <clears throat> dropping the ball left and right. He noted that Osage murders were definitely not that of a serial killer. We didn't call it a serial killer at the time, but he was just like, it's not following any pattern. We had people shot, stabbed, poisoned, drugged, bombed. It was random forms of murder, but he noted in his writings that these were very planned out executions. Yes, they were. Every single detail, nothing left a chance. White knew he couldn't trust anything from the local lawman or the private detectives. Honestly, the the giant file of stuff that the detectives wrote was just a lot of personal opinion. Just a lot of bullshit, basically. Like, they were following (laughs) stuff, but, like, it was just, they wrote down everything. There was no discernment. Oh, okay. Um, (laughs) I gotcha. Like, she talked about this and the sky was blue that day. Yeah, there was just so (laughs) many details. He was just like, this is so much. No wonder people were overwhelmed by it before. Um. It wasn't an issue like where sometimes there were no leads. There were too many leads and they hadn't followed them down and figured them out. Right. So he he was like, I need a team. And he knew they were going to have a rough time because witnesses at this point were terrified that they were going to be murdered. White decided that he was going to be the face of the investigation along with two other regular members of 
uh, the Bureau, and everybody else who was involved will go undercover. Mm -hmm. He decided the only other people he was going to bring onto the team were cowboys. So he brought in a 56-year-old sheriff from New Mexico with a talent for assuming new identities. Also, a former Texas Ranger who was very well-versed in danger. He brought in a deep cover agent who looked like an insurance salesman because he had been an insurance salesman. He kept uh, one of the previous agents who had gone into Osage County before, Mm -hmm. John Berger. John knew the case and had a list of criminal informants in Oklahoma. And he also brought in Frank Smith. Smith was also older and he was also a cowboy. The three of them were going to be like the front people who were doing the visible investigation that everybody in town could see. Right. Then they also, their last member was a man by the name of John Wren. John Wren is a former spy for revolutionary leaders in Mexico. And he was also Indian. Cool. He was part Ute, which is a tribe that lived in what is now Colorado and Utah. Wren was an incredible investigator, but he had been fired because he hated to do paperwork. I feel that. (laughs) Hoover had actually only reinstated him roughly a few months beforehand and was just like, you got to do what you're supposed to do, man. I, I, look, I do what I'm supposed to do, but paperwork is just like, it's above my pay grade. You know what I'm saying? Give me a raise, maybe. White needed Ren because in reading the old investigation papers, there was a lot of casual racism in the reports. And then also a little bit of jealousy. Just gotta love that casual racism. One of the bits I read said that uh, the Osage people were lazy, pathetic, and the only way to get make them talk was to cut off their allowance. Wow. That's the person whose your tribe is paying yeah. to be here and fix this. Yeah, wow. Fuck you. And here's the thing. Because the Osage tribe members could tell that these investigators didn't like them, why would you feel compelled to go out on a limb to talk to these people when anybody who talks to law enforcement is literally getting murdered? Like the next fucking day, you're dead. Also, can you imagine? You have paid $300,000 for these people to do an investigation about, and they're calling you lazy and entitled. I'm like, okay, you can go. Right. <laughs> Give my so, money back. White tells Hoover, these are who I want. And everybody sent was sent a coded message that said, proceed undercover immediately, reporting to agent in charge, Tom White. The group all slipped into town separately and under the radar with assumed identities. Two of them showed up at, well, actually one, he was more of like a quiet elderly cattleman from Texas who was going to become friends with William Hale. Mm. The man who looked like an insurance agent opened up an insurance business in downtown Fairfax and he'd go door to door specifically to suspects houses to go meet them. Agent Wren arrived as a medicine man searching for his long lost Osage relatives. Yeah. Ren attended tribal gatherings, made friends with locals who told him things that they definitely were never going to tell a white man. When White arrived with the other two, this was also the beginning of the FBI wearing the black suit, black tie, shiny shoes. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that's how so- White, Smith, and Berger show up to town. So they they come with this appearance so everybody knows. Right. We're the guys investigating. Yeah, the four Got other it. guys show up working in the oil fields, and I just working like, in the regular uh, yeah. ranching. 
And, and I just like how the guys, they already set up their shops there before these guys even came there. And they got right. they got their information already. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. It was, I mean, this was done very well. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Okay, I like it. So the first thing that White and the other two agents wear, like, go, they're like, where do we start? Well, first thing is they go check the Justice of the Peace. Anna's inquest records are gone, stolen. None of Anna's evidence had been saved. Literally the only thing that was left was that the undertaker had kept her skull because they had exhumed her body at one point. Mm. And the Schoen brothers, the two medical doctors in town, had like literally chopped up her brain to try and find a tiny bullet in it. So the undertaker was like, I'm just going to keep this skull here. Yeah. And they interred the rest of her. This was useful, though, because he was able to see what had happened. And he came to the same conclusion as the initial inquest. Her, There was no exit wound. That bullet should have been in there. So wait, they didn't, they didn't find the bullet no, in the brain? No, they never found the bullet from Anna. So they chopped up the brain for no reason. That's why they went back and looked at it again. Okay. But he was just like, no, this, what you, like, he, he spoke to the justice team. was like, what you said originally was right. There should have been a bullet in her brain. Mm-hmm. And that meant that one of the first people who were there at that inquest probably took it. In fact, they went and they spoke to the Schoen brothers and they were like, we don't know. We don't like you. Yeah. (laughs) It's very obvious that they're involved at this point. Yeah. Um, There was so much hearsay in that original, those 50 private eyes, that White is just like, you know what? I'm going to interview everybody on my own. You guys are going to help me. We're going to check out all their alibis one by one. Agent Berger helped him with this. Together they ruled out most all of the people that the private eyes left as witnesses, Mm -hmm. including Anna's ex-husband. When they looked into uh, the the situation was that Oda Brown was with a woman in another city and um, that was accurate. Okay. They were divorced. He was allowed to be out there right, slutting Right, around. right, right, right. Yeah, go, go, go <laughs> around. Go do your thing, man. He was out there, you know, meeting ladies. Living his best uh, life. They looked into the rumor that Anna had been killed by the girlfriend of someone she was having an affair with. What they realized through doing that investigation was that the private eyes had written down everything that everybody told them. And White determined, oh, some of this is just straight lies. This is manufactured to specifically throw people off. Hmm. J. Edgar Hoover also helped a little bit from D.C. He actually demanded daily reports. So they just sent daily coded telegrams to him to D.C. Um, but he was just like, there's a white woman you have listed here. Her name is Nisia Kenny, and she's married to an Osage man. And I think she's part of this conspiracy. Kenny had a history of mental illness issues, and she believed she was possessed and had tried to kill a local attorney. But Hoover had interviewed her twice and even had a government expert on mental health evaluate her. They realized they were like, she's a bit paranoid, but she's very perceptive. So while she'll make a terrible witness, she will be able to help us with the leads. Hmm, Okay. Hoover also pointed out that A.W. Comstock, that guardian, uh, was not the worst person. He had an issue, like they had real beef Mm -hmm. because Comstock had criticized him to the Bureau and threatened to turn Senator Curtis against Hoover. 
so initially Hoover was not on board with Comstock being a part of this. Right, right. But White was just like, shh, he's been showing <laughs> up, giving us a little bit of information, then hiding again. Mm-hmm. Because Comstock realized that this was real, real deal. People are still dying. Mm-hmm. By the end of July, White begins looking into Brian Burkhart, Molly's brother-in-law. The last person who'd seen him alive. Anybody needing a refresher, he swore that he took Anna home between 4.30 and 5 p.m. and then gone into Fairfax to see a show with William Hale and his brother Ernest and two other family members, an aunt and uncle. This seemed like a solid alibi. So Agent Berger traveled to Brian's family's house in northern Texas, which is Campbell, Texas. Um, And lo and behold, William Hale had also grown up near Campbell, Texas, too. Oh, wow. How funny. Uh... When they got, when, when Berger got to Campbell's family's house, sorry, to the, the house at, in Campbell, mm-hmm. Brian's uncle wasn't there, but his aunt was there and she launched into an entire tirade about how Ernest had married one of those red millionaires oh and she God. didn't like it. She was in the middle of this crazy conversation with Agent Berger and uh, Brian's uncle comes in and is like, Brian was with us. Y'all need to leave. Mm. Uh huh. <laughs> Excuse me, sir, but how the hell you know? How do you know what I'm here for? Yep, he was just like, listen, stop. He was like, Brian was with us. Y'all need to look into this. He has an alibi. Y'all need to get out of my house. Mm, I don't trust it. The alibi is not very trustworthy. I don't think so either. So it's August of 1925. White's undercover agents go into the town of Ralston. There was an old lead that Anna had been spotted by a group of white men who had been sitting outside of a hotel in Ralston on Main Street. Previous detectives had spoken to the group of men and they were like, we have no idea what you're talking about. They tracked down an old man who was originally kind of wary at them first. But once he realized that they were legit, he was like, oh, yeah, bat." He was like, um, I was there. And I definitely did talk to Anna. In fact, I know I talked to her because I was like, hey, Annie. And he said that she wasn't slumped over drunk. And she was in the car with Brian Burkhart and Brian was driving. He was definitely not in Fairfax because he was in Ralston at like midnight. Hmm. Interesting. There were other witnesses who confirmed (laughs) that Brian was driving the car, too. And this was the first kind of crack in Brian Burkhart's lies. There was no way he was both in Fairfax and Ralston at the same time. No, you're not a time traveler, sir. So White follows this lead, and he follows Agent Berger's network of informants, and be, they kind of create a timeline. So Brian and Anna had stopped at a speakeasy in Ralston and stayed there until 10 p.m. Then they headed to another underground bar a couple miles north of Fairfax. Brian's uncle from Campbell was spotted with them that night. But he left before they left that bar at 1 a.m. Then they kind of disappear for about two hours. And other people who he interviewed from Ralston said that they saw Brian, Anna, and a third man they didn't know at about 3 a.m. In fact, someone who knew Brian said that she heard him get out of a car. They were in, like in Fairfax. Mm-hmm. And he was yelling at Anna to get back in the car. That's the last time they, anybody in Ralston or Fairfax saw or heard Anna. Huh. 
And actually, he found out from these witnesses that after they initially had told that stuff to the private eyes, someone had come around and paid everybody off. Interesting. So it's the end of the summer now. White's like, there's definitely a mole in this investigation. One of his agents had been questioning a a local like crappy attorney. Mm -hmm. And the attorney knew a lot about the case. The attorney was like, oh, I've seen part of the bureau reports and I I can see more of them if I want to. This wasn't really anything new in the bureau's past. Breaches happened a lot. But the problem is this kind of a breach had was going to get a lot of people killed. Yeah, like literally as soon as someone says they have information about this case, they go dying the next day. On top of that, two of the previous Burns detectives tried to expose one of... Uh, Burger's informants, Kelsey Morrison. And they lied and told a uh, local PD that Kelsey Morrison had committed a robbery and he hadn't. So Kelsey gets pulled into local PD. Agent Berger reports that the local lawmen are trying to mess up their investigation. Mm-hmm. After Morrison is released, he's super freaked out and is like, uh, can you get these guys before they kill me? Oh, Agent Berger's like, you need to lay low. Watch out for traps. Like, this was so, like, when I say that the the identities of those four men who were undercover were so important, White never met with them anywhere near Fairfax, and it was never during the day. Hmm. They met in the middle of the countryside at night <laughs> to exchange information. They all were told to always carry their weapons, make sure you aren't being followed, In case your cover gets blown, you need to be able to defend yourself. Right, right. So then White looks into the private eye who Hale hired in 1921. Our boy, Pike, the one who, you know, said that he just quit and left town. Yeah. Right. Well, White's walking around town when they're all like kind of just doing their regular thing. Mm -hmm. Agent Berger is just a random guy walks up to him and it's just like, Pike and I work together. Pike has something he wants to tell you, but he's not going to tell you about it unless you pay him very well. Pike, he says, Pike knows the identity of the third man who was with Anna at three o'clock before she died. Of course, Agent Berger's like, I do want to let you know you are attempting to extort the federal government right now. Yeah. You should just have him come to us and talk to us. We can protect him. Uh, And the guy's like, yeah, no. So they launch their own investigation to find Pike. And they do. Of course they do. Because he gets arrested committing highway robbery in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Dude, come on. So when to attempt to get like a lesser sentence, Pike tells them that there was a local gambler who had been with the three of them. But the gambler had gone home before the third man arrived. So this was a useless lead from Pike. Go to jail. Don't collect $200. Yeah, but... he was, So pretty much Pike gave them another person they hung out with, but not the one they wanted. Then why did he say that he had information? He just wanted the money, didn't he? just he? wanted the money. He was just trying to extort them. Dumbass. Okay. Now, they did learn something from Pike, though. The three of them put a lot of pressure on Pike, and he went, I wasn't hired to find Anna's killer. I was hired to conceal where Brian was that night. 
I was hired to falsify evidence. I was hired to create for fake witnesses and to manufacture an alibi for Brian Burkhardt. <laughs> and he said, this all came from William Hale. Fuck you. Okay. Now, Hale hadn't said directly that Brian was the killer, just that he needed Brian to be clean. Mm-hmm. That's his nephew. He's looking out for his family. This was a big deal, though, because literally everybody in this town trusted William Hale. And now Tom White has evidence that William Hale is a big bad guy. So, yeah, Hale had... Well, um, Not only that, he'd been lying to Molly for four years. So they ask him, is Hale involved or is he just covering for his family? Mm-hmm. Pike isn't sure, but he's just like... Sometimes when I would meet with Hale, Brian was there. And so was Ernest, Molly's husband. (sighs) Which means Ernest Burkhart was in on this from the jump. So he must have been the third person that was there then. We'll see. At this point, it's very obvious to the investigators that the Burkhart family is part of this conspiracy. And he's like, did Bill Smith figure this out? Is that why he got blown up? Because that was his brother-in-law. You know, they were related through marriage. Right. Smith had uncovered that Lizzie had been poisoned and he was following the trail related to the head right money. And remember I told you that Bill would wake up and start panicking that, like, he had said something? Yeah. Shortly before Bill died, James and David Schoen, the doctors, called Bill's attorney and had him come to the hospital. Why? Wait. They specifically met with Bill and made sure there were no nurses around. Tom White <clears throat> is very suspicious of the Schoen brothers at this point. You should be. He was already suspicious because of that missing bullet. And he questioned everybody who'd been in the room. The doctor said they called Bill's lawyer hoping that he would tell them who was attacked. But Tom was like, why didn't you call a justice of the peace or somebody who could have arrested somebody? Yeah. They're like, it didn't matter. Bill didn't say anything. He didn't name his killers. But what he did tell his attorney was that he only had two enemies in this world. William K. Hale, the king of Osage Hills, and his nephew, Ernest Burkhardt. Okay. Now, Tom Waite, Tom and his agents determined that the Schoen brothers had orchestrated that kneeling for their own purposes. The lawyer had been called in to bring paperwork. And that paperwork, they got Bill to sign when he was just lucid enough, allowing his brother to be appointed to his wife's estate. So, Rita, Rita's head right money, mm-hmm. they had Bill sign it away. But the problem was, well, okay, so this is obviously the first direct connection to these murders being super tied to the head right. Mm-hmm. White looked more into it, and it was just corruption on top of corruption. Some of the guardians who'd been appointed to the Osage tribe were decent, but most of them were just straight up robbing people of their money. Like, he would find out that, like, a person would be like, hey, I want to use my money to buy a car. And the guardian would be like, bet, I'll go get you a car. And he'd buy the car for about $250 and then sell it to his client for $1,250, pocketing the $1,000 himself. (laughs) Guardians were getting kickbacks from the banks that held the money, stores that that the people shopped at. 
Um, sometimes they would just outright buy land in the name of their clients, mm-hmm. but it was for them. <sighs> Even worse, the U.S. government was looking at these purchases and going, the Osage people are really spending frivolously. And the Osage people are begging for, like, to use their money to, like, buy, to build schools. Right. They want to do good for a community. A government study actually was launched after this whole thing happened. And it showed that those guardians stole $8 million from the Osage people just in the early 1920s. What the f- <sighs> <sighs> And all those guardians were the most prominent men in town. Local judges, lawyers, prosecutors. There was one judge who legitimately was telling people, if you vote for me, I'll make sure you get on this guardian action. Oh, that is sickening. Mm -hmm. Some of the guardians would clean out the account and then tell their client, you don't have any more money. And just leave the person to just live in poverty. There was one instance where a guardian let a child die instead of giving them money from the account. What the fuck? And the thing is, it wasn't that the Osage people weren't aware of what was happening. It was just that they were like, this is just another way that the U.S. government is screwing us over. Again. They couldn't do anything about this either because they were appointed uh, guardians. Government guardians. Yeah. Oh, God. So this was like this. This was kind of startling for white because... He had read a lot of the same newspaper stories that other Americans read, which that the Osage people all had 11 cars and they all lived in fancy money and they were all stupid wealthy. Yeah, I have 11 cars. Not all my name. Well, they are. Right, my, yeah. all, they're all my name. But guess what? I don't drive my guardian any and his cousin and uncle yeah. and everybody else has a car. I don't have a car. Exactly. God. Oh, fuck. <laughs> so what White learned was that. The Osage people felt helpless and that they had nobody on their side, which was why they felt no real desire to talk to anybody who came to help them about this. Mm -hmm. So in September of 1925, the undercover insurance agent stops at a gas station in Fairfax and starts talking to a woman who worked there. He's like, hey, I've been here for a couple months and I think I want to buy a house. And the lady is just like, oh, yeah, well, you got to talk to Bill Hale. He owns everything here. She said that she had brought her home from Hale and she lived pretty close to him. And that one night, thousands of acres of Bill's land had been set on fire. And it was meant to seem like it was for other reasons, but she knew the real reason. And the real reason was that Bill Hale wanted insurance money. And in fact, he had collected $30,000 from that stretch of land being burned. White's going to look into Hale more. Remember Henry Rowan? Yeah. Who had been shot in the head twice and found in his car? He's frozen. Yep. Well, Bill Hale made this big to-do about how he and Henry Rowan were best friends. And that Rowan had been kind of uh, cheated by his guardian and didn't have any money. Mm. And so Bill Hale had given him over $12,000 because they were such good friends. I don't give that kind of money to my friends. (laughs) Anyway. Well, just before Rowan died, there was an insurance policy that was taken out on his life. $25,000. And Bill was the beneficiary. Of course he was. And of course, right after that, Rowan ended up with a bullet in his head. But no one had even interviewed Bill as a suspect. And so White tracked down the insurance agent who told a very different story. 
than Hale had told him of Houndsfolk. Remember? Because Bill's like, we're such good friends. He listed me because I was the last person, you know, and they were like, well, why not his wife? Bill's mm-hmm. like, oh, that's because his wife was cheating on him with somebody else. Oh, of course. Which was true. But... <laughs> And he was like, he just didn't want her to have any of the money. But beside the point, what the insurance agent said was that Hale had pushed for the policy. And the insurance agent was like, well, most people only need about $10,000 max, especially indigenous people. Mm -hmm. Because once the town uh, got wind of all that money, it became very expensive to bury indigenous people in the area. Of course. And they jacked up the price of funerals for the Osage tribes members to the tune of roughly $8,000. That's a lot of money now. That's way too much money back then for a funeral. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the typical amount that they would give for something like that was about 10 grand for an indigenous person to pay for their funeral, things of that nature, you know, help the family out a little bit. I mean, they would have been fine because eventually the head right money would come in the next couple of months and the family would be able to do what they needed to do. Right, right. Hale says Hale pushes the policy from 10000 to 25000 saying that Rowan owned him money. White didn't think the debt was real because... If it was real, all Hale would have had to do was present proof of that debt to the Rowan estate and it would have been paid back because that money is still dropping into an account. Mm -hmm. It's possible that Rowan never even knew that this policy was taken out on his life. I, I imagine. And after Rowan's funeral... They tried to pin the murder on the man who had been sleeping with his wife. And in fact, Hale like was like, you need to need to run. And actually the guy was like, no, if I run, people are going to think I did it. Mm-hmm. He was right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. You were going to think you did it. Rail, Hale on. also visited Rowan's widow and left a bottle of whiskey for her. And she disposed of it because she was like, Thank that's you. poison. Yes, it was. <laughs> I, I guarantee you it was fucking poisoned. White discovered that Hale had even tried to buy Rowan's head right previously, but that literally went against the government's ruling. Mm-hmm. There was no way you could sell your own head right, but the only way it could be passed down was through inheritance or like through a will. White followed the head rights and realized that these were all being slowly trickling back to Molly Burkhart. And if she died, it would go to her children and her husband, Ernest Burkhart. Ernest, just get the fuck out of here. We need to get Ernest out of this uh, equation. Well, because Anna's money went to Lizzie. Lizzie's money was dispersed back to her kids when she died. Uh Rita's money was actually supposed to go to Molly, too. The killer hadn't intended for Bill to outlive Rita, which is why they had to go and have him have Bill file that document before he died. Right, right. But the bulk of all of these head rights now belong to Molly Burkhart. She's she'd be receiving roughly four or five times her normal allotment. Girl, watch out. They looked into it. Scott Mathis, who was the guardian of both Anna Brown and Lizzie, in the back pocket of Hale. Every bit of corruption that Agent White found in Fairfax had a connection to William Hale. And that made it very hard to get any justice. So in the fall of 25, White told Hoover, I have to get evidence to put Hale away and his accomplices. There was 
pressure from white's bosses, but also pressage pressure from the Osage people who were like, we really appreciate what you're doing, but we're still scared. Mm-hmm. White was finally kind of on the same line with the Osage people, which was that there is no way any of the corrupt white citizens of Osage Hills were going to implicate one of their own people in murdering Indians. So he turned to the outlaws instead. These men were any less racist, but some of them wanted Hale gone too. He specifically talked to Dick Gregg, a well-known outlaw who had information, but he didn't want to tell it all. White met with him and realized that Dick Gregg would easily backstab roughly anybody he knew, but not William Hale. Greg did, however, let Agent White know that Hale had met with the outlaw Al Spencer and his gang, which Greg had been a part of in 1922, Mm. and that Hale had offered them $2,000 to kill Rita and Bill Smith. Al Spencer had declined, saying, we're criminals, but we're not hitmen, and we're not just going to murder some innocent lady in her bed. So White ended up then going to Henry Grammer, the bootlegger who Bill visited, just like Every other witness against Hale, Grammer had been killed shortly after Bill died in 1923. There was a clear sign that if you were a biz- if you were a criminal who did business with William Hale, you were going to die after your business was concluded. Oof. They still had their other informant, Kelsey Morrison, who told White really bad news. Bill Hale knows you're on to him. One of the undercover agents had gotten close to Hale and when they talked about the case, Hale was like, it's all good. I'm bulletproof. Oh, really now, sir? So at that, White was like, okay, we're safe for now. They don't think we're a real threat. Mm-hmm. They just know that we know about it. October of 25, Agent White gets a tip. A prisoner named Bert Lawson knew a lot about the Osage murders. So White and Frank Smith go to McAllister Prison to talk to him. Lawson had been a ranch hand for Bill Smith. And through him had met the rest of the Hale family, all the brothers and all that. So when Bill Smith and Lawson had a falling out, Ernest Burkhardt had gone to Lawson and was like, listen, I need you to kill my brother-in-law, Bill Smith. We'll give you five grand. And Lawson was like, listen, it's not really what I do. (laughs) But then Lawson got arrested and he needed lawyers. Uh So he said that he agreed to do it out of desperation and that Ernest provided him with nitroglycerin and had even dropped him off at Bill's house to do the deed, and then they snuck him back into the local jail while the cops were at the explosion. On October 24th, 1925, White sends a telegram to Hoover saying they have a confession of the person who set the bomb. Hoover was like, bet, congratulations. Mm -hmm. This is when Comstock starts receiving threats for helping with the investigation and had even found dynamite, planted in like his windows at his house oh like he could open the windows yeah, to let the air in and he was just like there is there's a dynamite here this is not good there's a boomstick in my window <laughs> so john wren the youth agent had spoken to molly's priest and molly's priest was like yeah she hasn't been to church in like a long time but she did send me a message saying she was poisoned and so the priest was told wren I told her, don't drink any alcohol under any circumstances. (laughs) It wasn't the alcohol. Well, that's the thing. They didn't realize that. It was the insulin injections that were being poisoned. And Molly was 100% right. It was just happening very slowly. 
as to present itself as an, a slow ending illness, just right. like her mother. Yeah. Finally, it was December 1925. Agent White couldn't wait any longer. He sent out warrants to arrest Will Hale, William Hale and his nephew, Ernest Burkhart. Ernest got picked up right away and they took him to a jail in Guthrie, which was roughly like southwest, like 80 miles. Hale actually couldn't be found. And they had learned that he like bought a fancy new outfit. And then he strolled into the sheriff's office and was like, I understand I'm wanted. Oh, my God. And so they took him to jail in Guthrie, too. They were held separately and they actually put Ernest in this area of the prison that was hot as hell. Like, so he would be super uncomfortable. Yes. They, in fact, all the, the, the police in Guthrie were like, Ernest is going to break first. He, he just seems like he would. No one breaks in the first 24 hours. Ernest just sits there saying over and over, your informant is lying. Hale's like, I have an alibi. I was, I literally got a telegram in Texas and signed for it. How was I there for Bill's assassination? White goes out on the limb and he decides I need to bring Blackie Thompson in. I forgot all about Blackie. Got to. Well, remember they had originally <laughs> used him and then had to put him back in prison because he was a little too rowdy. Yeah. So he didn't even, so here's the thing. White didn't even re- like talk to Hoover about this because had he asked for permission, Hoover would have said no because that had been a big scandal and had gotten him in trouble. Mm. But what he did do was White had Thompson always under an armed guard. They, he legitimately had a rifleman on a nearby building, always with his rifle on Thompson the entire time he was there. Hmm. Like, they took every attempt to make sure Thompson did not escape. So they bring in Thompson. He's initially kind of hostile and rude. But when Agent White goes, listen, I don't want to know about anything else you're doing. I want to know about Bill Hale and your connections to him in Osage Hills. Mm -hmm. And that's when they noticed that Thompson was like no longer as uh, aggressive. He told White told him, listen, I can't shorten your sentence. You're literally in jail for life. But eventually Thompson began talking. And he said that he had also been offered money to kill Bill and Rita Smith. So they took that back to Burkhart and they said, listen, we have a second witness willing to testify that you conspired to kill Bill and Rita Smith. And so Ernest is like, nah, no, you don't. And he's like, cool, bring him in. So they bring in Thompson into the same room with Ernest and Ernest Burkhart is shook. <laughs> shook his. Thompson looks at Ernest and goes, listen, Ernie, I told him everything. Burkhart, it's almost like he wants to talk, but he's too scared. Multiple times he like starts the conversation and just goes, I can't. They take Thompson back to his cell. White goes home a little bit defeated he's like maybe the hold that Hale has on his nephews is just too much in the middle of night though he gets a phone call and he's worried he's like oh god it's a phone call at like midnight does that mean Thompson escaped or somebody killed himself or something like that no it was the prison Ernest Burkhart is ready to talk oh okay 
Barcone was told his rights. He signed a paper saying he waived them. Then he made a statement implicating not just his uncle in the bomb plot, but connecting Hale to a lot of the criminals that Agent Smith had learned about. Uh, Burkhardt told them that Lawson actually had lied and the bomber was not Lawson. It was a demolition expert that they had found named Asa Kirby. Uh, Asa Kirby had been eliminated just like all the other criminals. Uh, it's like you haven't heard of them. Right. That's why Lawson's still alive. If he had been the one who'd done it, he'd be dead. Ah, that's very true. Okay. He said that uh, Bill Hale's alibi was real. He had just paid Kirby to do the murder. Burkhart turned on uh, a lot of people. He implicated a man named John Ramsey, a known cow thief, for killing Henry Rowan. Ramsey initially played dumb until they brought Burkhart's signed confession to him, and he went... I guess it's on my neck now. Get your pencils. The wow. only person that Ernest didn't implicate in his confession was his brother, Brian Burkhardt. Why not? And Brian was the prime. It was his brother. Come on, man. Well, he, so he implicated his uncle. But Ernest did give them the name of the third man who was with Brian and Anna. Was it Ernest? No. Who was it? Kelsey Morrison, the <laughs> informant that they'd had the entire time. He didn't want to implicate himself. What? <laughs> In fact, Kelsey Morrison is the person that killed Anna. Wow. Okay. So they went to go gather Morrison and they decided to check on Molly Burkhart. Yes. She was near death. And coincidentally, as soon as her husband was locked up and the injection stopped, Molly got better. What happened to the damn brothers? What, where, where are the brothers at? Well, Ernest never admitted to poisoning his wife. The Schoen brothers were brought in and they were asked about what they were using to treat Molly. Mm. They never gave a straight answer. Like, I read the interviews. They're so cagey. Like, <laughs> like I, I can explain to you. The answers that the Schoen brothers gave were the same, but also very cagey. Like at one point he was just like, well, why did you ask the nurse to leave? He was like, I don't remember asking the nurse to leave. He was like, well, did she lie? And he's like, no, if she said I asked her to leave, I did. But there's lots of reasons why I could ask a nurse to leave. Okay. It was that kind of stuff. Like it was so cyclical. And honestly, I think that White was just like, I'm fed up with y'all. I would have choked them. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you better answer my questions correctly. No, it was always, it was really cagey. It was very cyclical every time. Like they were like, oh, you know, are you sure it was insulin that you were giving Molly Burkhart? Well, we thought it was insulin. We don't know. We just get the syringes. We're not putting it in there. You are putting it in her. (laughs) So you should know what you're giving a patient. I hate hate them. They are the two I hate in this story the most. (laughs) Of all the people you're mad at, you're mad at David Schoen and his brother. These two people, they are pissing me off. Okay, anyway. Well, all in this, though, Molly's like, I really want the people who killed my family to go to prison. Mm. And they're like, everybody? And she's like, yeah, everybody. And they're like, Ernest? She's like, I love Ernest. She's really struggling. She's just like, no, it's not him. It It was Ernest, too. With all the other confessions... Agent White goes back to Hale. He's like, listen, we have all this evidence against you, man. It's going to be so messy. Your family's going to be implicated. It's going to be a big shame to your family. Do you really want to do all this? Hale was like, I'll fight it. 
Oh, okay. So it went to court. Hale and the co-conspirators were tried in both state and federal court between 1926 and 1929. It was state and federal court because some of the murders were done off the reservation. Mm -hmm. So those were tried in local court. Whereas the ones on the reservation were done were handled federally. I'm going to save you a lot of the sordid details. There were a lot of deadlock juries. There were appeals. Overturned verdicts. Halfway through Ernest's trial, like he was messed up. Like he was just, he's described during his trial as just looking haggard. At one point, Hale and him have the same attorney and they bring him in to, like he walks in and Hale's like, wait, He's on our side. (laughs) And so they make him go talk to that attorney. And when he comes back, he starts recanting all of his confession on the stand. That gets everything shut down. It's a big craziness. And finally, that night after Ernest was put back in prison, he actually requested the judge. And he was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. And the judge is like, what do you mean? He's like, why aren't you talking to your attorney? He's like, they won't let me do what I want to do. And judge is like, what do you want to do? He's like, can I just go to prison for life? Can we just be done with this? This is really stressful. And so the judge was like, okay. He's like, no death penalty. You just go to jail forever. Mm. Um, he turned state's evidence and told the police that Hale had also gotten George Bighart killed as well. George Bighart had been to see Hale. And then come home and died. He implicated his uncle in the poisoning of Joe Bates. The trials were pretty heated. Um, Kelsey Morrison finally admitted to killing Anna Brown at the request of Hale. And he said that Brian was his accomplice. Brian also turned state's evidence. It took four separate trials to get Hale convicted. Wow. October 29th, 1929. He was only convicted for one murder come on how long henry rowan okay well how long is he put away for he was given life in prison and sent to leavenworth prison in kansas okay unfortunately he was paroled on july 31st 1947 (sighs) after serving 17 years in prison he moved to montana because he literally lost everything in oklahoma good where he became a ranch hand he died in Arizona in 1962 and was buried in Wichita, Kansas. What did he die of? <laughs> Natural causes. Damn it. He was on. old. I don't care. By then, he was in his 80s. Okay. <laughs> Despite all the setbacks, this was seen as a major win for the Bureau, which would become the FBI in 1935. That's awesome. And become its own. It wasn't just a part of the Department of Justice anymore. It was its own Federal Bureau of Investigation. Mm-hmm. Ernest Burkhart received life in prison and got a full pardon from Oklahoma Governor Henry Bellman in 1965. He wanted to go to jail. I know. Molly divorced her husband, got remarried to a man named John Cobb. They were very happy. Um, Actually, during Ernest's trial, their daughter, Anna, died. She was four. Oh. It was really just devastating for her because she was like... Damn, I sent her to go live with her other family and be safe, and now she's gone. Yeah. Uh, Molly died of natural causes in 1937. Her head right went to her surviving older children. Mm-hmm. 
Tom went on, Tom White went on to have an illustrious career in the FBI. He actually ended up becoming one of those college boys that he never liked. <laughs> he had a stroke in 1971 at 90 years old and died December 21st, two months later. Oh. After this was all exposed, the U.S. government changed the headright law, saying that the allotment could be passed down to nobody other than other Osage tribe members. Yes. In an attempt to make sure the reign of terror never happened again. No more white men coming in. Pretty much. Didn't matter if you married into the family. If you weren't, if you, you had to be at least 50% blood quantum for you to have this head right. That's Like I said, they do still have the treaty. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the treaty, I'm sorry. They do still have the... Head the right? head rate and they do still get that allotment but there has been continuous issues with the guardianship it's not the same as it was then but there was still major mismanagement on a bigger level i can't believe it's still going on stop the guardianship Oh my God! They freed Britney. Free, free. Right, right. Well, you know what? The the free Britney thing is has pointed to a lot of people that conservatorships and guardianships and things of that nature are very easily yeah manipulated, manipulated and taken advantage of. Absolutely. I'm sure some of those the the children of the Osage tribe were some of the people who were just straight robbed because they would have never even looked at their accounts. Yeah, no. <sighs> they were kids. Um. There is more to this story that was reco- it was discovered later um, when reporters looked into the cases. I'm going to leave that up to the people listening. The majority of this podcast today was sourced from the book Killers of the Flower Moon by David Graham. It is totally worth reading. You should get yourself a copy. There is a whole third <laughs> section that discusses the newer information that has been discovered recently. There's also another book that I read called The Deaths of Sybil Bolton by Dennis McAuliffe, who learned way later in life that his grandmother, Sybil Bolton, was poisoned during the Reign of Terror. That's what the movie's called, too. Yes, the movie is called Killers of the Flower Moon. It's called The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. It is one hell of a story. I totally understand why it's a movie now. Yeah, Leonardo playing Ernest. Yeah, well, I mean, Ernest was a white guy, so yeah, I know. I'm interested in who's gonna play the indigenous women, cause like who's playing Rita and Lizzie and <laughs> yeah, um, are they First Nations actresses? Cause I would really like that. They got Lily Gladstone playing Molly. Who is that? I... But yeah, I I don't know, but it was like I said, one hell of a story. I gotta look at and you. this just happened yeah, in our history. Holy cow. Goodness gracious. That was a story. I told you. Like, I was so hyped. And I was like, this went way longer. I looked at my notes and was like, oh, dear. We're at like 17 pages. <laughs> <laughs> but totally, absolutely, incredibly worth it. And if you listened, thank you so much. Mm, mm. So we got some spooking to talk about now. We got some spooking to talk about well not spooking okay um people who investigate spooking though Ooh, okay okay so talking about talking about our boy zach bagans again i never talk about him (laughs) (laughs) i will never there will never be an episode where i talk about him (laughs) maybe definitely not maybe he gets arrested by for doing douchebag stuff anyway 
No. Today, I'm going to start this off by um, apologizing. Okay. Of uh, recanting, I guess, whatever. Oh, um, Lily Gladstone is a First Nations actress. Oh, there you go. Yay. I just didn't know she was. I looked her up. I've heard her name before. I just didn't know. Um, but yeah, I'm going to start this off by apologizing. Um, to anybody who's listened or who is listening, who goes back and listens to any of our earlier episodes, um, when I first started talking, when I was talking, I mentioned Harry Houdini and oh, then, yeah. and then I hear, I mentioned, uh, Harry Price as well. Okay. And then I got Harry Price mixed up with Vincent Price. <gasps> oh dear. <laughs> because it's the same last name. Right. But, but Vincent Price. Yeah. So. I didn't even peep that the day you said it. Yeah, it's it's okay. Like I, it was one of the earlier episodes, but I'd confuse uh, Harry Price with Vincent Price in the Scooby Doo. Uh, <laughs> Vincent Price. Price is like awesome, awesome people. Yeah, I know Harry Price is awesome people too. Okay, but I just wanted to go back and um, correct that Are it was we Vincent. About Vincent Price? Huh? Are we talking about Vincent Price? No, but maybe oh, okay. I should one day. He's because a super cool dude. Vincent Price is, yeah, he's one of those pillars that I like to think about. Because when I think about Vincent Price, I go, I know, right? Look at that face. <laughs> yes. He had a weird eyebrow thing. Oh, my God. Yeah, he did. But, yeah, no, they animated him in the Scooby-Doo uh, movies. But Oh, wow. Yeah. He was in that. It was fucking awesome. Anyway. No, I'm talking about the other Price today. Okay. Harry Price. Okay. So, do you know who Harry Price was? Can't, like, offhand name him. Okay. Well, since I already talked about Harry Houdini. Yes. I'm going to talk about Harry Price. Okay. So, Harry Price was basically... Was he also a magic man? He did sleight of hand. Oh, cool. Um, but Harry Price was basically... I've probably the, seen him. The, yeah, the UK version of Harry Houdini. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so what was did he do the things like the I'm locked up inside of a big old giant case of water situation like those ones? Those no, 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 no. <laughs> I feel so anxious when I watch those. Nothing like that. I'm like oh, I'm watching a murder. Because like with Houdini, he kind of like started out as a magician, right? And like stage magic and stuff like that. And he, you know, then he that, became, you know, and then he was into like the the. the the defrauding of the mediums and stuff like that. But even uh, then, after that, he did stuff that was, he did the escape. Or frauding mediums. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, like, his, his whole career wasn't, like, the medium thing. His, his yeah, that was towards the end. Yeah. And mainly that was because he got mad about the mediums and his mom. Look. look. Understandable. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I don't want you to mention anybody who I know who has died, fam. Mm-hmm. Tell me about some strangers, but if the person mentions somebody I know, I'm gonna be mad too. Yeah. Especially if you get it wrong. Cause like he's like, Oh yeah, your mom learned English in the afterlife. Get out of here. <laughs> My mama is Hungarian. How is she gonna learn English? She ain't speak English. Lies. Oh my god. But did okay, so, so did Harry Price do something similar? Harry Price did do something similar. So Harry Price he started his career out basically with the supernatural and then um well the paranormal and then he he learned uh sleight of hand magic and stuff like that on his on his way so this is a story i'm gonna i'm gonna tell this it's gonna be like a multi-part because i got another there are other cases from harry price i want to talk about oh so you're just talking about one particular harry price case i'm gonna i'm gonna do like a little short one today because i do (laughs) 
I did tell you that I wrote too much. And then I, I was bad. like, okay, well, let me just stop right now. <laughs> you could have gone, listen, we can no. have a three-hour episode. We later. can have a three-hour episode, like, next week, okay? No, it probably won't be as long. <laughs> Bet. <laughs> but, I already know who I'm going to talk about next week. I already planned it, so. There you go. It won't be as bad. Also, I, I got to. I got stuff to do after we record next week. That's right, you do. <laughs> so That's right. I can't be recording. Never mind, not three hours. hours. We we're gonna we're, one day is gonna be three hours anyway. Maybe episode fifty. There you That's go. That's the one where I said I do Gary Ridgeway. That's gonna be our long episode. Um, so Harry Price, he was born January seventeenth, eighteen eighty one, in London. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think this was cool on his part, but. He kind of wanted to change some details about his early childhood. Oh, dear. Basically, like, mainly where he was born. People always do that, though. Um, So he, he wanted people, like, if you read, uh, I read one of his books when I was, uh, you know, writing this up. Uh, Confessions of a Ghost Hunter. Okay. I think that's what it was called. Um, And he states in there, he was born in, like, oh, Shofry, Shof. Suffolk? No, not Suffolk. Um, it's S H R O P S H I R E. It's something sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not getting all the letters you're saying, but um, literally, somebody on my timeline the other day was just like, "Shrop, sure." <laughs> they literally were like, "If I have nothing to tell Americans, it's Worcestershire." It is wish, yes. It's it's Shropshire. So there's no Shire. It's sure. It's that I know for sure. It's Shropshire. Shropshire. All right. That's not where he was born. That's not where he was born. But he did study there, and it's it's a really nice place. I guess a lot of uh, wealthy people lived there at that time. So he wanted people to think I got wealthy parents and stuff like that. Why was that something he worried about? I don't know. Sure. Um, He was actually born in New Cross, Mm -hmm. uh, and his father was a uh, traveling salesman. Oh, nobody like traveling salesmen. <laughs> we they still don't. Uh, it's a weird one of those jobs that like was necessary, but people hated them. Yeah, in the same way that people hate when people come to your door now. Yeah, that's why I had that. I have that nice no soliciting sign that says no soliciting. Don't ring the doorbell. Don't knock. Don't make it weird. Bro, I have received so much Mormon stuff in the last like two months. It's crazy. Someone Mormon must have moved into this apartment building. <laughs> I was like, fam, I just don't even want to talk to you. Please don't talk to me. Oh, my God. I got a thing. Do you have a church? Ugh, leave me alone. <laughs> no, nigga, don't. Leave me alone. Anyway, at the age of 15, uh, he founded the Carlton Dramatic Society, which is now called the Carlton uh, Theater Group. Okay. Uh, it's a place where you know, amateur actors, they go. Oh, that's nice. Playwrights and stuff like that. Um, and this is where he wrote his first play, uh, The Skeptic. Oh. Which was an account of his first ghost experience while he was investigating his first haunted house. Oh. So as at age fifteen, like there was this haunted house in there and you know, people they were reporting uh poltergeist type activity. Oh. So, you know, he goes there, he checks it out, and then he writes this play about it. And this is basically the only reason why he founded this Colton um <laughs> dramatic society is so he could write this play. About him going to investigate this haunted house. Okay. Yeah. 
But yeah, he goes into great detail about this in, in his book, The Confession of a Ghost, uh, Ghost Hunter. Okay. Um, you can find it on archive.org. It's oh, for... I love archive.org, fam. It's <laughs> the, so good. The whole thing is there. I've looked for other books. He has other books there, but like that one's actually really good. Um, so he was also interested in archaeology, which is really cool. He was a coin collector, too. and you know, Just small little tidbits of things that, you know, make him awesome. Uh, an early influence to his life's work um, was the great. <laughs> I cannot pronounce his name. Oh, Lord. I tried it so many times. It's, it's like okay, so it's basically. I'm not saying the name. I'm not saying the name, but it's a a traveling uh, merchant, basically. Okay, uh, how's this book? You didn't write it down. Yeah, it did s s e q. U C H. S E Q? Yeah. U C H? U C H? Or U E H, yeah. You didn't even spell it. I forgot you hate your writing. Shut up. Anyway, <laughs> we're not talking about that right now. Sequa? Yeah, there you go. So it's the, that that word. Um, okay. So. Basically, this person is like a traveling merchant or they like a traveling medicine man. Okay. Like a. Oh, that makes sense. Like it, a, it sounds indigenous. Okay. Yeah. Like a flim flam man sort of that uh, sells snake oil and stuff like that, too. So I looked up the name. Snake oil sales. And it's like there's a there's a whiskey named after this, too, or some oh, type fun. of alcohol. It's really cool looking. But yeah. So they did like magic and stuff like that. So. He, he, after, you know, after he devotes his life to, like, this stuff, he goes into the society. It's called the Magic Circle. Okay. Um, it's a British organization made for promoting uh, the art of magic. So, here is where he learns, you know, his sleight of hand and some, like, little parlor tricks. So... He's in a society about magic. And in the society about magic, he's also learning about like conjuring things. You know how magicians they conjure I don't know, rabbits out of hats or, you know, doves out of their arms and stuff I guess like that. It also that counts as conjuring. And I mean, that's probably not the kind of conjuring he was learning, but <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. Of. I, yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about, you know, <laughs> Yeah, like uh, spirits and stuff. Um so this gives him like a leg up on wanting to learn more about paranormal. So he, after, you know, he's in his magic circle, he joins the society for physical uh, research in 1920. Okay. And he was interested in mediums like Houdini, but unlike Houdini uh, price, he endorsed Houdini. Uh, he endorsed mediums that he actually believed were like, correct Real. yeah okay so unlike houdini who was just like i'm not gonna believe anything you like saying. there's some i like what the mediums, mediums? yeah mm. i'm more like houdini I'm like, I, I like don't the trust lady from dead files okay her name's amy i forget her last name but i like her show mm-hmm. it's corroborated by a police officer oh wow okay well former police officer who seems like a nice guy 
You know, that means something to me. Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. I give it a benefit of the doubt. <clears throat> but yeah, so he endorsed mediums that he thought were the real deal. So here is one of his earlier cases. All right. Like one of his very first cases. So this is interesting because this guy started out an amateur ghost hunter at 15. Grows up. He's an amateur ghost hunter, archaeologist, coin collector. <laughs> he, he wrote plays. I'm starting to feel very much jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> Just say. So, February 1922, Price and a group of uh, you know some magicians that were in his group, uh, they go. They're investigating one of the most famous spiritual photographers of the okay. time. His name was William Hope. Okay. And Hope, so Hope was a member of the crew circle. Mm -hmm. So this is a group of people who were basically just all spirit photographers. Okay. And what Hope would do, he, you know, he would offer his services to people, of course, to get spirit, spirit photographs taken. And... The way he would do this is that he would get people to hold plates, I guess, mm -hmm. in their pictures. And after, you know, the pictures were developed, they develop and have a spirit behind them. Yeah, yeah, I've seen these. Yeah. There are actually some really beautiful ones from him. Mm -hmm. There's the one with the two people in the front. And then there's a lady with a veil right behind them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Super cool. Yeah. Fake as hell. Very <laughs> cool, though. That's a creepy picture. But yeah, like it's really hard for me because I went to school for photography. So, and I got to use old timey cameras. Mm -hmm. Literally, all you have to do to make a spirit photographed is while the camera is just sitting there with the silver exposure, run past. It's because it took so long for the exposures to, to settle <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that it, anything that just darted by. So there are pictures of like bugs zooming by that like cause people to think this was it's spirit. <laughs> if it was from the 1920s, I don't trust it as far as the spirit photography goes. Like I said, he did some impressive fakes. Yeah, no. They didn't look blurry. They looked cool. Yeah, no. Some of his pictures, they were like, I looked at them. They were actually really, really nice. Really good. I just know the one, the one with the lady in the veil. That's the one that I've seen that I think is incredible. There's another one. Um, there's one of Richard Price. He got one taken. Uh, not Richard. God. Uh, Richard. Harry Price. Harry Price. God. I don't oh, know. I want to see that one. I'm thinking of Harry Pryor. Uh, Richard Pryor. But, um, hold on. Let me look it up. Richard Pryor. <laughs> the comedian, Ryan. Yes. <laughs> hold on. Here. Um, it's the picture. The picture. Google and Harry Price. This one right here. Now look at this picture. <laughs> Tell me that's not a fucking... Just look at it. It's another lady with a veil. But look at that lady's face. You can tell it's like a... It's not... Oh, yeah. She looks like a mask. Yeah. It looks like a freaking statue. Or Also, fun fact. Yes. Um. So the way... So you've used Photoshop. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you know that the different... Things on Photoshop the, are referred to as layers. The layers, yeah. That goes back to stuff that you had to do in dark rooms, which I also learned how to do in college when we had a whole dark room year, um, where you physically layered things on top 
of your like like exposure mm-hmm. and that's when you like turn the light to expose it so there were actually ways that you could it's very plausible he did that here yeah instead of catching it in picture because like i said when people walked onto the the exposure it showed as blurry this looks almost like two separate pictures next to each other yep which it, he very well could have merged those together in the dark room it's really intriguing. I didn't know any of that stuff until I, I did it officially in school. It's just because, of course, you know, I grew up on digital cameras. So we yeah. spend the whole first year <laughs> just learning the old ways. Oh, goodness. Pain in the ass carrying around that big old honker. I believe it. And setting it up in Philadelphia. So another person who got their picture um, taken is uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Really? Yeah. Love it. Uh, do you remember him from the Houdini <laughs> episode? Well, I mean, everybody knows Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, he he loves his he loves the spiritualism. He's in he's you know he's in that scene. So I'm gonna Google Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's spirit picture. So yeah, the picture he got was of his dead sister. How and... they do that? Oh oh, his looks way more janky. <laughs> but. Price and um, Price had this whole group, his his group of magicians. Mm-hmm. They had this plan to see if they could, uh, you know, prove this this uh, this prove. Um, oh, I love it! This is so funny. Look at this one. This prove hope. Yeah. This looks so bad. Yeah. It's just. It's like a picture just plopped on top of another picture. It's freaking terrible. Who were these people being the ghosts for him? <laughs> I don't know. I, you know what? I need to find a book about William Hope because I'm like. I'm sure who there was, are. Who was? Who were these actors who were like, bet I'm gonna get my like five dollars for the day to be a ghost for Look, <laughs> William Hope. I know. The thing there is, could are. you use anybody else at that point? Once you were in one picture, he couldn't use you again. No, probably not. Oh, it's beautiful. It's just super funny. When you put this on YouTube, you just have to show all these pictures that I'm laughing at. <laughs> this is the good one. Oh, okay. That is a mask, isn't it? It looks it's, like a it, mask from It right looks here. a little bit like a mask, but she also looks kind of real. It's just a weird veil, and they're just like chilling. They're like, okay. all right, we're taking a picture. Just, okay, okay. But my thing is, wouldn't you think it was like a little bit suspicious? That he was able to get all of these spirit photos and so many of them are in just such good detail and it's 1922. That's why he had investigators coming to check him out. Okay. So, like I said, Harry Price and his crew of magicians, they have this, they have this method worked out. Mm-hmm. And so, what it was is it consisted of presenting hope with a set of glass negatives that had been secretly marked with x-rays. Um, so the strap worked. So when Hope returned the plates, the one the one containing the extra spirit image yeah. showed no sign of the markings. Oh, uh, he used his own. Yep. So he switched out the ones the x-ray ones with his own. Gotcha. Um so this, yeah, like I said, but he, he could have very easily just been like, "Oh, I like to use my own supplies." But he let people bring their own plates and stuff too. Oh, okay. So this was just weird that he would switch it out. You know what I mean? If you let people bring the stuff, okay. So 
East called. They're like, okay, dude, we know you switched out. This is this this is what happened, and you know. So he was doing this during the the negative process. Yeah. Okay. So after they, you know, they find him guilty of this, spiritualists, spiritualists are like, nah, nah, you guys are just out here, you're trying to frame our boy for. <laughs> oh, okay. He got his little medium buddies to show yeah. up. Yeah. Trying to frame our boy Hope. So like, we're part of the community. Hey. <laughs> They are supportive, but for the wrong. Like, oh wrong, no! <laughs> they're, they're wrong. They're wrong for supporting him because he definitely faked it. And well, they were probably faking it too. Yeah, they were. So if you mess if you mess him up, you mess us up. <laughs> so yeah, they're like you're wrong for trying to like expose him as a fraud. Like even Conan Doyle, he was like he came to you know Harry Price and true. He was like, hey guys, could you like recant what you said about Hope because. I believe he's right, and everybody else does, and we don't want to see anything like Listen, see him going down. Listen, we're just trying to have a good time. <laughs> yeah, you basically, guys are messing it up for us. We just want to believe in ghosts. But there are people out there who believe in this, and they're being hurt by this. You know, like with the Houdini thing, people are going to these mediums like expecting an actual real experience, and they're getting something fake. I mean, people fake. spent their entire life savings on these mediums they spent all of their money chasing after this idea that they could see or hear or talk to their dead relatives again it was real bad (laughs) yes so (laughs) i do feel bad about that yeah that sucks yeah um so once you're there oh my god okay so when um when Conan goes to Price and he's like, "Can you do this?" and Price is like, "Nah, bruh. Like this is this it's is my what, job, fam. Yeah, what this is what we about? do. We're here to expose these people." So Doyle's like, "All right, bet." So he goes and writes his pamphlet about <laughs> about his side of the story and oh, how so you know it's serious when there's a pamphlet. Oh yeah, definitely. And about you know how Hope William Hope is like this. He he's right about this stuff. Um, I'll remind you guys, Conan Doyle, he was a believer of all things paranormal and spiritual, and he didn't like being wrong. So he even went as far as uh, contacting his good buddy, Harry Houdini. <gasps> at this time, I think they're still friends at this time. This is before they like completely had that falling out. Yeah, I believe so. Can you get your fellow magic buddy and tell him to leave me alone? <laughs> And Houdini was kind of like conflicted, right? When, when because at this time he was also on his way to go investigate Hope. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best. He's, He's like, "Listen, buddy, I know we're friends, but like, this man is just lying. That wasn't really your sister." <laughs> oh my god! Take the L. Write another book. So I have what he wrote to Houdini. <gasps> so he wrote this letter to Houdini on April 13th, 1922. And he, he writes, um, I've written a book on psychic photography with special reference to the crew circle. The evidence in their favor is overwhelming. Though, what happened on a special occasion with two amateur conjurers out of a stunt in a third dingwall behind them is is more than i can say we found that another test was independently carried out 
about the same time. Well, I guess my other situation. So they're talking about the the like the silver plates, right? Mm-hmm. The ones that they. I mean, this is how you did photos yeah. back then. Yeah. And so they're saying that they hid little bits in the the silver plates. I I don't think what they got. I think Hope was a total fraud. Mm-hmm. But I don't think what they got was really enough to say he was a complete and total fraud. I guess since he switched the plates out. He could have come up with any lot. Like yeah. he could have come up with loads of logical reasons. Why he's maybe it yeah. broke. You know the ori- I'm so sorry. Your originals got messed up. I had to use my own instead. Like I feel like he was just a bad shyster because he couldn't come liar. up with a good lie as to why he used a different one. Well, he probably wasn't caught before either. True, true, true. And so he was like, so he had a little of that. What do you call that? Like they they think that they're like you know the hu- yeah, hubris. Yeah. He had a little bit of that hubris, and that's, like, really what messed him up. Because yeah. I'm like, I can think of a million reasons why I would be like, nah, I use my own stuff. Yep. So, after he writes his letter to, you know, Houdini, Houdini's like, mm, not really impressed by this, sir. So, like I said, he's... <laughs> <laughs> well, I love his reasoning. Listen, I wrote a book, and, like, if you release this information, my book's gonna be wrong. <laughs> he basically... <laughs> so, like, can you not... Can you like calm it down over there with your, your like, listen? I get it, but like, I have a book to sell, sir. So, uh, like, it doesn't I, matter because afterward they're no longer friends anymore. Yeah. So, <laughs> so like I said, burn that bridge right. He really <laughs> did. He really did. It was bad. Houdini was already on his way. Well, he he was yeah planning, he was planning on going to investigate William Hope, but they the got sca- there first. Okay. But they were scheduling Houdini couldn't go, so he had someone else sit in on, and get a picture taken for him. Ooh. He did the same thing that um, that Price did with the you know the the plates, and I will say, it's it shows some level of skill. We're talking mid nineteen twenties, being able to to do that and make it look like oh yeah, absolutely, Sir Arthur Conan, Conan Doyle's actual sister. Yeah. That skill, that means that he had to manufacture a lot of drawing and <laughs> adjustments. Which also explains why he couldn't use just that one plate. Yeah. Because he was probably using multiple layers it, to yeah. get that image. You could tell, like that one you just showed me with the big face in like the middle, you can tell it's like different plates on top of. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that would explain why he didn't have, it wasn't done with just one. Yeah. It was done with multiple layers. Yeah. Still very interesting. It really is. Like you you put in the work for this. I like you're you're still fake and a fraud, but you put in the work. Right. What an impressive <laughs> way of using your skill set. <laughs> yes. Oh goodness. Because like there's there's important things you can do in post. Like the whole concept of like dodging photos and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. That's done in post when you're, you know, making something darker, making something lighter. Like that process is useful and can make the picture look better yeah he just did all that stuff <laughs> just to lie to make a quick buck oh my god <laughs> so after you know Houdini does this thing um sir sir arthur conan doyle okay um he writes another letter to houdini oh no <laughs> basically saying that okay so we're not friends anymore <laughs> no not that <laughs> that'd be funny though he writes and says hey those, those plates that had those x-ray markings on them 
those x-ray markings, they disappear after a while. So obviously he wasn't use he did use their place that they, they, they that they brought, but the x-ray markings disappeared. <clears throat> so after he gets this letter, Houdini is like, all right, I, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of being like the middleman. So he goes and he contacts Price. Okay. And so Harry Price and Harry Houdini, they're they're buddy buddy. So they're, okay. they're they're cool guys together. Okay. Um, and he he tells Price about this, you know, the X ray stuff. And Price is like, dude, I'm already on top of this because I know for a fact these X ray markings don't disappear. Yeah. When you said that, my face did a what? Yeah. Be- that's not how that works at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like. Whatever, sir uh, uh, Doyle. Yeah. And uh, Houdini's like, all right, cool, cool. As long as you know. <laughs> all right. So. I like that, though. And a little professional courtesy for people yeah. uncovering frauds. Absolutely. Just letting you know, he's saying that you gave him bad plates. It disappeared. It was your fault. <laughs> he's like, no, no, no. Don't worry. I got this. Yeah. There's. There's this whole back and forth between these three guys. Okay. Houdini just being the middleman. Oh, with, that's with Conan, Conan Dooley just coming to him and saying, hey, your buddy Price is wrong about this, and this is why. Oh, and, my God. It, I'd be so annoyed. Yeah. And Price is like, yo, get your boy Conan Dooley out, out of here, because he's he's harassing the hell out of me and my group. He needs to stop. <laughs> We're just trying to take pictures of ghosts. Gosh, leave us alone. <laughs> Oh my god! But I yeah. tell you, I only want to see a picture of a ghost somewhere that I'm never coming back to. Because if it's one's in my house, like mm. this, your house now, fam. Guess you live here. Yeah. <laughs> but soon, um, years later, okay, Conan Doyle he admits defeat after years, years of harassing Harry Price about just this one thing. Like, I mean, they didn't. Did he ever release the book though? The pamphlet? Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. The the well did he release the book about how he had studied ghost photography and all that stuff? I'm pretty sure he did. If you look cool. up if you look him up, I'm pretty sure you'll find it. That's what I want to know. He's like, I'm just gonna release this book anyway, screw it. Um But yeah. Oh, that's funny. But like I said, they they, they throughout their whole career. Uh, Harry Price and Sir Arthur Arthur Conan Doyle, they never saw eye to eye. <laughs> to fight. They just stopped to fight each other. It's it's crazy. It was crazy. And like Harry Price, he was like the nicer version of Houdini. Like he gave like the mediums the benefit of the doubt. And Houdini was like, all right, I already know you're faking from the My like- favorite thing is that Houdini is just like, I'm not just gonna have somebody crawl up under this fucking table right now. <laughs> I love it. He's like, watch your legs. Oh my god! So after exposing after this whole situ- whole, whole thing is blown over now, and after exposing like this is his first case, I mind you. So after exposing a few more people at the SPR, um, Harry Price he starts his own organization. It's called the National uh, Laboratory of Physical Research. He gets a little bit of flack from the SPR that he was in um, because. He actually paid his medium, the mediums that he came that came in to do his tests. He paid them for their time, and they're like, "Don't don't be paying these mediums. Like they might be frauds. How are you paying these frauds? You know what I mean? You're just 
giving money to frauds. <laughs> I'm just saying. Because if I'm that, show like, up anywhere, you need to pay me. Yeah, but like their their SPR's whole thing was, you know, we're gonna find out these, you know, find these mediums that are, you know, doing fraudulent readings and stuff like that. But Harry Price is like, well, yeah, but they're coming to me to do their readings and stuff, so I'm gonna give them like pay them for their time. And you know, it's only fair. And I agree with like what he did there. <clears throat> So, there are many more cases, like I said in the beginning, that Harry Price was involved in. Uh, this was this one was just like the tip of the iceberg, like his starting point. And I will be covering one or two more, maybe like there's a big one I'm going to cover like next week. So okay, um, but either way, Price was praised for his work at you know debunking fake mediums, and his paranormal investigation skills. Okay. Uh, there have been several biographies written about Harry Price, some critical, some sympathetic, okay. some very, very critical. There was one that was uh, released in 2006 uh, about how he was a con man and stuff like that. I was like, dude, I'm pretty sure, no. He was exposing the con people. True. I mean, yeah, when you're out there debunking things and mediums, there are people out there who are writers and who don't like you and write bad things about you. Yeah, no, understood. Yeah. Um, so Price would later die at his home mm-hmm. on March 29th, 1948, from a massive heart attack. And that's what I got for this week. It's not as long as I should have. Just wait. Wait till next week. I got some stuff for you. It's going to make you laugh. And it's going to be funny. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be compelling. All right. (laughs) Well, I'm interested in more stories. Good. You're getting more. (laughs) You're going to get more whether you like it or not. Uh, Oh, goodness. Well. I just interesting path we've taken today yeah i i just i don't know i just like i like the game of telephone between these grown-ass men (laughs) (laughs) i just like how harry houdini and you got harry price they're just no they're they're doing the same thing so they're buddies they have their own community and then you have (laughs) conan doyle out here with his group of spiritualists and they're just like Look, we're gonna curse you and do all this stuff if you don't stop telling the truth. Oh, I just love, I just love the debunking and just the invest, investigation into the stuff. It's mm-hmm. really awesome. But yeah, that's it for me. Um, hope you guys enjoyed the episode this week. Yeah, I think we had a, a good time. I yeah, always have a good time. It's always fun, and then your story is always. They always throw me for a loop. Uh, it's because the, the, the shortened version of what we know, like, there's always so much more to it. Mm-hmm. So. There's always a backstory to something. Yeah, oh. somebody told me that uh, they listened to last week's podcast three times. <laughs> what? Yeah. I was like, oh, well, thank you. Oh, my God. Why? Why'd you do that? 
I guess they were really into. Uh... You were mad? Were you, were you also mad that you learned what was? That's Catherine Knight. Yeah, you learned that her her first husband or whatever was cheating on her when she was accusing him of cheating on her, and I was like, no, he wasn't cheating on her, but he was actually cheating on her. Yeah, you were really <laughs> upset when I brought that point up. You were like, wait, no. <laughs> like, how dare you, sir? Oh, my God. Dang it for being a scoundrel. He still didn't deserve to be, like, beat with a frying pan, though, fam. Okay, no, he did not. But he also. But regardless, thank you for listening uh, to the 30-some percent of people who stay till the very end. Dope. Yeah, you're and awesome. And if you do stay in the end, I actually just would love to invite you to... Be a part of this with us. We have so many ways that you can talk to us more. Some of those are through Patreon. You can send messages. We respond through Patreon. Brian talks to people on there. Like I said, (laughs) for people who do do the $50 tier, you get to have a QA and a with us once a month. You can talk about whatever you like. You can give us any sort of criticism that you want. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. We have our own little like AMA once a month. You have access to the... Extra podcasts. Yep. Which is going to get spooky this October. Oh, goodness. We're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> Along with a lot of other things. <sighs> so thank you for listening. Yeah, we appreciate it. Good night.